0: are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is an ongoing analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, we take a look at the origins of Sean Connery's acting career, and we get to take a look at a Walt Disney production. It's 1959's Darby O'Gill and The Little People. Bond. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Bondzilla podcast. I am Nick, and I'm uh, well. <laughs> Ooh,
1: we're going, we're going soft this, this, this week. <laughs> going back to the NPR style that we always go to every now and then, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Bond, James Bond,
0: and uh, as always, it's here are my exploits. And as it's always, another <laughs> exciting time.
1: Um Nick, I was thinking about this before you head into your before you head into today's subject. And I have a very important question for you. And you know, it's something that we should discuss every time that we hit this cinematic milestone. Yeah. How much does the current Fast and the Furious franchise owe to James Bond? <laughs> I was thinking about this because we talk about on the yeah. show about how much both of these franchises. Oh, Did you get them? Yeah. What was it? Was it just like a... It's some, like some a sort of bug. Bug? You're just going to leave the body there?
0: Well, I mean, I'm not... We're recording a podcast right now. Not really much I yeah. can do with it. <laughs>
1: um, but uh, Nick just killed a bug, in yeah. case that wasn't clear. Um, but we talked about, on the show, about how both of these franchises have, in some ways, uh, always have influenced um, uh, other you know, right. movie and cinematic uh, experiences. And... Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about the Fast and the Furious franchise, because the thing about Bond is that it definitely, I feel like almost every spy thing, like now, is really like ever post-Bond, has something yeah. to like, uh you know, some uh relation or inspiration from Bond. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've always joked about any, the reason I'm talking about this is because we have just been granted with the uh, great cinematic experience of, Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, which at this point has gone, even though it's gone full G.I. Joe, is definitely way more spy, saving the world, uh, big villain, uh, cheeky dialogue, more so than any, I think, of the Fast and Furious movies. Right, yeah. uh, So it's interesting to see that franchise, in the broader sense, turn from what it was to what it is now. But in relation to the Bond stuff, it's just it's just funny that it's like uh the the whole legacy of uh Bond has in some ways seeped its uh claws into that as well. Everybody eventually wants to become a spy. Yeah. Is basically what I'm I trying to so. get at. I think
0: it's just like when you look at you know where you know, like, you know Hobson Shaw went, where Mission Impossible franchise has went. Right. Um I think there is definitely a lot of kind of that earlier Bond kind of magic yeah. in terms of kind of the nuttiness and the stunts mm-hmm. and sort of you know, the crazy things um, that happen in those movies and, you know, the villains in in many ways, especially with more Hobbs and Shaw than, than Mission Impossible. Yeah. Um, well, even like
1: the the most recent Fast and the Furious movies have kind of like had like a, oh, like uh, this time Jason Statham's the villain. This time Charlize Theron is the villain. Yeah. But it is funny because between those two franchises you just mentioned, um, Mission Impossible mm-hmm. and Fast and Furious, those are our, here are two elements That we have said that apparently James Bond is known for, yet has not delivered the goods in terms of a villain. Yeah. Like, you know, we've, we've been a little bit more critical about the Bond villain, yet we have a franchise that seems to always be like... Idris Elba is your villain now, and you're gonna like it because it's Idris Elba. Or if you have Mission Impossible, um, it's like, oh, here are the crazy, over-the-top stunts that can never happen and would probably kill a man. Yeah. Uh, which you know we haven't necessarily had as much of in, in the bond James of Bonds recently. Which
0: which was like a big legacy. And one of the things like I said I've really discovered is just how much those Bond stunts kind of, you know, how much work was put in those is those stunts and effects.
1: Yeah. No. But it, it is interesting to see. Like it, it was just interesting going to see a movie that is more so in the vein of what you know. I'm not trying to say like hobbinshaw Shaw is what James Bond should be, but it is more of the cinematic experience in vein of what you think that those bond movies should be giving you in which it's like fun spy action and pithy dialogue and everything and it's funny that you watch it we you watch a movie like that and at least you get that visceral experience but i haven't had that from a bond movie yet in and long, and, in, and, yeah. and actually the last time i had it was in our most recent never say never again episode mm-hmm. so you know i, I
0: mean th- it's been a it's been a very long time since like the eon films have really done that sort of thing yeah i mean really like the brasen era is like the last time that they did that because with with craig they went into the like you know gritty reboot type of idea right and so um it'll be interesting to see kind of where where Bond 25 lands and then like will they you know because again when they have a new bond after bond 25 mm-hmm. you know we've talked about this on our deep dive episodes as a plug for you guys to <laughs> listen to our our, our deep dives not on a Patreon, no, not, not behind a paywall. No, you can have no, it for free. No, again, again, we could. We could yeah, have a we Patreon. could do it, but we're nice. We're nice and definitely don't have enough fans <laughs> of, that would pay. As beautiful, Shh, don't tell them that. You keep telling them that. As beautiful as you guys are, thanks again for leaving. You're all so the, beautiful, all the in the your reviews. faces we haven't seen. And the reviews are great. Yes, um, absolutely. But uh, yeah, it's just they have. They'll have, you know, a new slate, and will they continue? the gritty reboot will they continue to do the born even though Bourne hasn't even worked in a long time right yeah that's or true will they go into what has been making money which is stuff like Hobbs and shaw mm-hmm. and um you know uh mission impossible fallout right and even once upon because a those, time those in
1: movies hollywood. are fun did you did you just sneak once upon a time in hollywood in there yeah <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast my friend <laughs> yeah. but uh one one last thing i want to put down before we move on um can we, can we get Vanessa Kirby in a in a Bond movie please, please. come get, on can man can we get Vanessa Kirby
0: in everything yeah okay
1: i mean listen i want her in that i want her in the new batman movie i want her in a marvel joint i want her like hell like if we get another monsterverse movie you know put her in mecha godzilla I want Vanessa Kirby in everything, she, but she would fit in a Bond movie. She would though. very
0: much fit in a Bond movie, yeah, because because yeah. she's already
1: played like the two. She's already played action Bond girl and evil Bond girl Some, somewhat, between yeah, uh, Mission what, Impossible and Hobbs and yeah, Shaw. Yeah, somewhat
0: evil Bond girl, right? Yeah, you know? like because she's not really playing either. You know, right?
1: Yeah, morally gray, morally, morally gray yeah, Bond yeah, girl. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um,
0: so th- those were just, and uh, you know what? She's got she's gotten to kiss Tom Cruise and The Rock.
1: That's true. That, that That is that is true. So now um, she just has to kiss a Bond. Yeah. And that's a girl's dream, I suppose. <laughs> um, So yeah, here we are back again talking about movies. Yes. Yeah.
0: And uh, again, this is uh, the start of a brand new era for the Bondzilla podcast as we are now on to our Bond adjacent era of the uh, Bond side of things. So again, we've completed all the movies that have a James Bond in them. Uh, so now, as we continue on forward with the podcast, um, up at least through 2025 25 is where we hope to get to, um, we're going to start doing things that are related to Bond. So other kind of spy spoofs, other things that have influenced the Bond franchise. We're going to take a look, especially at, you know, probably some Mission Impossible at some point. We'll take a look at Jack Ryan at some point mm-hmm. as well. So we'll basically kind of run the gambit of things that we've discussed on the podcast and things that are related to Bond. And uh, for this week's episode, I am very excited because we get to talk about one of my other biggest passions, probably my absolute biggest passion, uh, which is Disney, as we get to talk about the um, the film that uh, Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman discovered Sean Connery in uh, and the movie that they saw to, that they decided to cast him in Dr. No, uh, a movie that is celebrating its 60th year, uh, 60th anniversary this year. It mm-hmm. is 1959, mm-hmm. the Walt Disney movie. Darby O'Gill and The Little People. Uh, so for this kind of preamble, pre-production thing, uh, I'm actually going to split it into two halves. Uh, we're going to talk about the early life of Sean Connery and kind of what led him up to acting and what led him to this point. And then we'll wrap it up with a little bit of a production of Darby O'Gill and talk about kind of the some, you know, some of those behind-the-scenes facts. Let's... Alright, you ready to talk about some Connery?
1: That's what I I said, let's do it.
0: All right. so Thomas Sean Connery was born on August 25th, 1930.
1: Who is Thomas Sean Connery? I thought we were talking about Sean Connery.
0: That is actually the one and the same. What? Uh, He was born on August 25th, 1930, so actually it is his birth month. So it also kind of works out that way. He'll be celebrating his birthday later. Uh, this month when we were talking about Godzilla stuff. Oh, nice. Um, uh, he was born, uh, very Scottishly, um, to a Scottish mother and a Scottish father, of course. Um, uh, though he does have, uh, his great grandparents were Irish immigrants. So Connery would always say that he was fully Scottish with a little bit of Irish in him, uh, somewhere. Um, He uh, very much kind of grew up within sort of the framework of being a Scottish child, um, very into kind of Scottish history, Scottish lore, um, as well as kind of the Roman Catholic nature of, uh, you know, the Scottish lifestyle. Um, Now, obviously, he was born Thomas Sean Connery. He he says that uh, he got the name. He started referring to himself as Sean because he had an Irish friend named Seamus when he was a kid and they were both inseparable so their other friends would just call him sean and seamus kind of as a little kind of duo thing and so basically he kind of referred to himself as sean Mm -hmm. um though his within his family he was always called tommy um but basically he could have had a normal childhood in in to an extent um, but he was a fast grower uh by the time he was 12 years old he was six foot two um and also known at that time as uh Big Tam, that was his nickname, in, uh, uh-huh. in so it was cool. Uh, and he also claims that he looked so adultish that he lost his virginity at fourteen. Nice,
1: uh, definitely so. the man you want for bond.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly, you know. So he that was kind of within him in his, <laughs> in his youth. Um, and though it, was- it is funny
1: because even if, like, let's say that's true, it definitely gives you him the swagger to be like, I could be an international man of mystery, definitely.
0: And he also claims that he lost his virginity to an army woman. Uh, so
1: that's that's when you got to start poking the holes in the story. Yeah.
0: it's like he he had me. I I believe the first
1: part, but then when you said specifically an army woman, except the story could be so outlandish that it could quite possibly be true.
0: Yeah, but he he basically he like enjoyed sports as a kid. He played soccer. Um, he you know grew up doing like work as a milkman as well in high school. Um. But uh, that was basically kind of the normal childhood, seemingly pretty good. Um, but uh, he when when he went off of you know university and everything like that, he immediately went to join the Royal Navy and spent some time in the Navy, um, at which point he acquired two tattoos. Well, did you know Sean Connery had tattoos? No, um, so I did not. He, they're very small tattoos, but they are tattoos he's, he says really defines uh, who he was and who he is. Uh, his first tattoo... It's, very, his, it's his first and last name. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, first one is just says Mom and Dad with a little heart, you mm-hmm. know, with one of those classic Navy tattoos. Right. And the other one is, of course, Scotland Forever. So, that was basically like what Sean Connery wore on his sleeve. Oh, you know, okay. He loved his family and he loved Scotland. Okay. I was going to
1: guess a little four-leaf clover, but th- th- I guess that's kind of close.
0: Yes, sure. Uh, but... Um, Connery would leave uh, the Navy to uh, be discharged on the medical grounds of uh, an ulcer. That was a family history thing. And so after the Navy, he was a very much kind of did not know what he wanted to do with life. Um, Cause he kind of thought, you know, I guess having sex with an army woman really inspired him to be like, well, I'm going <laughs> to fight in Navy and I'll have sex with army women all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, but
1: uh, unless like, he's like, I'm going to become a person of the army and then I'm going to have sex with people. Like, he's like, you can do that in the Navy? Yeah. Like, he, may, he thought, like, you can only do that when you yeah. go in the Navy. And then it, he kind of grew up a little <laughs> yeah. bit.
0: Um. So with that, he, you know, he started doing basically kind of odd jobs here and there. Um, one of which was he was a lifeguard at one point. But mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 career that would kind of push him towards uh, what he would, what his destiny would be with it, he would be an artist model for, you know, oh, painters okay. in college. So, you know, a classic kind of, you know, kind of sit nude or nude-ish still. Tasteful nudes. Tasteful nudes where artists learn to draw human anatomy and stuff right, like right. that. And, uh, you know, his size and his um, look basically made him perfect for that role. And through that, um, through the posing, um, especially with kind of his large and navy muscular body, uh, he was approached to start uh, becoming a professional bodybuilder that some people thought, hey, you would be pretty good at this. So he started to do that. And that was going to be his career for a long time. Uh, so he started professional bodybuilding around 1819, um, just out of the Navy. Uh, and he actually did very well uh, to start with. He finished third in some of his early festivals. He basically could have made a career out of it because, you know, first, second, third, they get paid. Uh, So he basically could have been made a career out of bodybuilding. Uh, But the problem became is he became a little disenchanted with it uh, after he started to see American bodybuilders Mm -hmm. because he felt that American bodybuilders had an advantage because one, um, they basically had no limits that American bodybuilders, just the culture would let them allow themselves to push forward you know, as their bodies as far as possible. So they could just get huge and probably took a little bit of those extra juices Mm -hmm, um, that weren't as big in the Scottish or European bodybuilding scene. Um, And also the fact that the American bodybuilders uh, generally also really focused entirely on bodybuilding, whereas Connery and others in the European field also like to do other athletic activities, which if you know bodybuilding at all, Doing actual athletic activities actually lessens your muscle mass, Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas if you put your full focus on just lifting weights and stuff, that's when you kind of get the huge muscles. Right. Because Connery still enjoyed playing soccer, Uh, So um, and in fact, he uh, was actually offered a chance to play soccer professionally Um, right around this time where he was thinking about quitting bodybuilding. Um, This was about when he was 20. Uh, he was was playing, kind of playing some friendlies for like local clubs and stuff like that, and he was approached to you know start playing for you know Scottish League and stuff like that, and possibly be you know make his way up to like a World Cup sort of stage. Uh, but Connery felt like, well, most soccer players are done by thirty, and I'm already like kind of approaching my early twenties, and. I'd rather kind of figure out whatever I need to do to kind of have a lengthier career. Mm -hmm. Um, So he kind of, he could have been a big soccer star, um, but he passed on the opportunity. Mm. So while he was doing this bodybuilding stuff, he was kind of at the tail end of the bodybuilding, trying to figure out what's like the next kind of thing I want to do. Uh, A bodybuilding friend of his, they were kind of doing a workout session and the friend mentioned that, uh, you know, if you're looking for some extra money, they uh our local Scottish theater is putting on a production of the musical South Pacific, mm-hmm. and they need some extra extra people some extra singers and Connery notably did not sing think of himself as a singer and really did not enjoy singing, not he was just in his personal life just didn't sing he enjoyed music but didn't sing right so he's like well i'm I'm not a singer and and the other bodybuilder is like well, you know they did it's it's kind of the chorus, so like you don't really need to sing. You right. just Need to kind of have a voice, you know, that kind of blend in, fill it, and it in, fill yeah, fill it in with the uh, with the stuff. So Connery's like, well, you know, this is kind of some extra cash. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do, um, and uh, why not? You know, why not go out? So he, um, he went to the theater and he got the gig in South Pacific, um, and basically that was just kind of. How his acting career started? It oh was wow! Just, it was just basically like this. Seems fun. Uh-huh. Uh, this is like it was essentially started as just hey, here's another thing to pay the bills while I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was basically like, yeah, South Pacific, and this is it. And then he had some fun times. Uh, but the other big moment uh, that kind of leads him to continuing is uh, two things. Uh, there was an after party for the after the first showing of South Pacific in the theater, uh, it, which is where Connery met uh, Michael Caine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael Caine, they basically had a great conversation, became quick friends. And Michael Caine had basically said to him, well, I don't know your talent, but you have the look to be an actor. So right. this is something you should kind of, you know, if if you have the talent, you're going to be in essentially, is what Conner, uh, what the advice that Caine gave him. And which is really not that far off. Uh, but then... During the tour of South Pacific, so the, the, the Scottish production eventually went on tour, and uh, Connery met an American actor named Robert Henderson, and through Robert Henderson, Connery found out a lot more about other theatrical productions and you know plays like the plays of uh, Henrik Ibsen, like Hedda Gabler, uh, as well as kind of you know Shakespeare and James Joyce and you know Bernard Shaw and just like kind of poetry and acting in that sense, uh, kind of the classic like poetry acting and stuff like that. Poetry acting is not a thing. I just, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like performing poetry yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and performing that type of play. And, and Connery was also someone who like, it's one of those things where it kind of clicked where in his youth, his mother would always tell him stories and he would always enjoy that aspect of things. And so things just started kind of click where it's like, well, this is actually something I could do. This is something I could pursue. Uh, so we started to actually go out for more actual auditions and stuff like that. Started doing a little bit more plays within Scotland and got his first film role in a background role in the 1954 musical lilacs in the spring. Um, so basically he started to just get smaller roles, extras. Things weren't really working out for him. You know, it wasn't like fast rising star. He was Mm -hmm. basically, you know, putting in the work, putting in the, uh, the time to, you know, get these smaller roles, like you're on screen for a second or two, just kind of things of payment. Uh, Things were so kind of... He started becoming a a babysitter to the stars, as it were, to kind of make an extra buck. So Mm -hmm. a lot of, like, you know, British and Scottish film actors, he would be their babysitter while they were filming or doing stuff. So that was kind of how he started to make connections within the industry as well. Um, But that... uh, The real next big break for him um, was a television production, British television production of a stage play called Requiem for a Heavyweight, Mm -hmm. which is basically a tragedy about a heavyweight that, you know, uh, you know, uh, basically like, you know, you know, gets killed or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't know. I didn't.
1: didn't, That was... was, that was such a build up to like such a simple thing. You were like, "Well, you know, I was like, well, like, what happened? you're like, like he died. He,
0: he like fights, but he like right. you know, he's too into it. Right? And okay. Like, you know, like he has like the big all fight. Right, all right. I have okay. to win this, You know that sort of thing. All right. Fair enough. Uh, but the the thing was is that it was supposed to be uh, a reprisal of a role that was played by legendary actor Jack Palance mm-hmm. for British television and in, in a script that was written by Rod Serling." Um, but Palins backed out at the last minute, and a director just didn't know what to do. But he had remembered Connery, seeing Connery in some you know in some parties, and kind of seeing him in those smaller roles. And he thought, well, why not give you know the you know this young and up and coming actor a chance to to do something? Uh, so basically, that Connery does that production of Requiem for a heavyweight for BBC Television, and that starts kind of getting him more and more roles. It starts getting him an agent, more mm-hmm. and more. Ideas, but most of the t- mostly still, he's just kind of doing kind of roles on British television with the occasional uh, film role, as it were. Um, but basically, like what I found very interesting about like kind of this early career Connery is that it really does match up with the way that Connery always seemed to act about acting, mm-hmm. where where it really was like he definitely enjoyed acting and he enjoys talking about acting. But it really, you know, when you see Connery chat sometimes and kind of especially the later half of his career. He very much is kind of that, like, yeah, well, I just kind of doing what I do, you know? Right, it's like yeah. He, he's very much, like, you know, it wasn't he, like... He's
1: part of the... He's one of those, like... Uh, in fact, I think a little bit more so, like, you know, like, I think Michael Caine actually is a lot like that, too, where, I mean, clearly they enjoy the, the craft and the vocation of it, but uh, there is definitely a sense of... They enjoy it, but it is also, like, something that they do for a job, and that they kind of, like, balance that out pretty well. But it's, like, it, it's funny because you see people when they perform or do anything in the arts, uh, clearly they do their job, and they're talented at it, and they do it, but to them, they also, unless with the exception of maybe they're working on something that they think is, like, mind-blowing, for for the most part, they seem to look at it as, like, a job that they like to do. Yes. Yeah.
0: And he he's in that wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. But it's always just, like, when you look at him, he's just, he's very, he seems like, Especially in interviews, like you kind of you do hear some things about like kind of the hard headedness and the stubbornness of Connery sometimes within these productions, mm-hmm. but especially when you see him kind of. But I always feel like those stories come in the heat of acting. Oh, sure. And, and that kind of the passion of acting, which I think he does have it now. Not to say that he doesn't care about acting, but when you see him in, like interviews or reflecting on his career and stuff, he's always very like chill and mm-hmm. calm about the way he talks about it. And he's just kind of like, this was the way it kind of worked. And. You know, we did this thing and that thing, and you know, um, yeah, and Connery. Um, yeah. the last thing I'll say because we're really, you know, really with Connery, it kind of leads up where he's just kind of doing all these. So
1: stuff. yeah, so anyway, so th- this is what led him into the acting proper. Yeah, and acting then, proper, yeah, okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but he did have a reputation, uh, for being like actually physically imposing, and I think that's what also caught people. Right. Um, there's there's a story about early on his acting career where he was uh apparently targeted by one of the uh, Scottish kind of gangs, essentially. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, a you know, this group of, like, youngsters that right. would, like, you know, try to, you know, get on people. And apparently there's a story that goes that he was basically approached coming out of a bar in Scotland and they tried to steal his jacket and tried to beat him up. So he basically initially got away and then chased him down uh, onto a balcony and uh-huh. basically, like, just kind of took down the leader, essentially. Like, <laughs> basically had a fight, like, started, like, just kind of took him down, started choking him. Uh, A little bit and then basically he had this reputation of like well he's also a fighter Uh, which kind of actually
1: that that that's a story i want to i want to check the details on that one too (laughs) we gotta
0: we gotta there's so we gotta we gotta we gotta go find connery we gotta ask him about having sex at 14 with the army yeah i
1: don't know which which story i want to hear more about yeah i think the fact again there's always a detail that's like too absurd like he went back and and searched them out he went to go find them yeah like he's batman like it's like no what Mm um so anyway so then he so he's now now he's acting
0: yeah so now he's up to that point of acting but he really so the requiem for a heavyweight thing was you know kind of his big break within british and and european uh acting because he essentially got this big tv role um that would be occasionally replayed on bbc and now he was basically starting to get a little bit larger roles, mm-hmm. but in this, like, let's say that was 1956. He's so a working actor. He's at a this working point, actor, yeah. but nothing, nothing too big yet. Mm-hmm. But it's it that's coming for him until
1: until we until, get until into there's it. one giant mouse yes. that finds him.
0: All right. So now we're going to move on from from the Connery discussion into the discussion of our movie today, yes. Darby O'Gill and the Little People. So this is. I'm going to be talking a lot because I'm a little, I love Disney. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned it a few times. Save some podcast. for the movie. I save some for the movie. <laughs> save some for the movie. Uh, but just I feel like what would be good for this one because I could also start a whole podcast about Disney. I, you know, I have almost done it at some point. Maybe I will in the future uh, for those of you listening. It could be something. Um, but basically we're in 1959. But we're going to go back to 1947 for mm-hmm. a second. So 1947 – um walt disney in the kind of the end of the world war ii era of the studio which was a very tough time for the studio the the u.s government essentially took over their studio as a base of operations for you know the war in the pacific after pearl harbor Mm. um they had to basically cancel a bunch of projects like you know stuff like peter pan and alice and wonderland had to be delayed because they just didn't have the money most of their animators went off to war so that's when they did the World War II era of the studio. So they did the South American films and you know Fun and Fancy Free, Make My Music, kind of the anthology type of films that they did, as well as most of their money was made doing propaganda work for the government, um, you know, propaganda shorts uh, and uh, army films for training videos and stuff like that. Uh, oh, the bugs alive! Is it get him? Yeah, there you we
1: go. Well, then don't don't just like. You just don't like, like you just like swept him like no, onto I, the floor, like over to the side. I didn't mean to. Well, you didn't mean to, but you did it. I have to be honest. I think did he play dead for a
0: while? That's that's fun. That's that's actually yeah we saw yeah it. yeah because we I had we, forgot about yeah, it. We Is, saw nature. And he's yeah. just <laughs> I didn't mean to put him down there, so he's still
1: well. Him. I mean, now he's down there, and now he could be alive, and yeah. now he's plotting his revenge, and yeah. it's all your fault. I know.
0: Anyways, so. But basically now the war is kind of ending. Uh, the, the U.S. government has gone away from the Disney studio in 1947, and Walt wants to kind of return to regular production. Um, and the other thing about that period of the studio 1947 is that they had started to do some live-action stuff, but nothing major yet. Because um, the live-action history of that studio is that early 20s they did the Alice Comedies, which combined animation live-action Then with with Oswald and Mickey into the original Snow White and stuff like that, they really focused in 100% on we're an animation studio. Uh, And then they started to experiment with doing live-action stuff with stuff like So Dear My Heart, Song of the South, uh, and the Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos and stuff like that. Uh, But Walt always had an eye because what the other transition is, 1947, is that they've really transitioned from essentially being an independent studio to being kind of their own thing, because mm-hmm. pe- people forget about Disney, especially now that the company is so huge, mm-hmm. and the companies always seemingly had kind of a huge presence. But the the studio was essentially a kind of independent mom and pop studio, in the sense that it was very much insular. It wasn't like stuff like Fox or Warner Brothers or MGM or RKO, which was their initial distribution deal where those were like huge studios. They were making like 20 films, 30 films a year and, you know, hiring in directors and actors and stuff like that. Disney at the time was very much like, we're just kind of small time studio, very insular, very much like just kind of making a film or two Mm. every year. And now with the world war two stuff, the studio was kind of on the brink of collapse essentially because they couldn't make so much money during the war. Um, so they started to try to kind of expand their reach to try to, you know, take some risks and make some things happen. So 1947, Walt decides that he wants to do another animation live-action uh, film in the realm of So Dear My Heart and the Song of the South. Uh, and he decides he wants, to, he wants to take inspiration from his own Irish heritage. Uh, so he travels to Ireland uh, to do some scouting and announces a film called Three Wishes, which is about a which would be about a kind of a man and a leprechaun kind of going to war with each other, essentially. Um, And he has a script writer in place. He kind of has announcements done. But the other kind of issues that they had struggling at the end of the war basically prevent that from being made. And the studio wouldn't recover from the World War II era until uh, they do Cinderella in 1950 uh so between that time and 1950 as well uh disney decided to go full on with the live action portion of his studio because his previous live action efforts have all included animation so they've all included like either you know a lot of animation with live action or animated segments or what what have you it was always kind of both Mm -hmm. and walt decided well now is the time where we're having this success we got to start expanding ourselves we're our own studio now we're not and you know we're not distributing with someone else we can make our own decisions let's start doing live action stuff so he starts doing the three british co-productions that he does um which is uh treasure island uh sword in the rose and robin hood is merry men um where he has a writer named lawrence edward watkin uh and through this period of the british co-productions He's talking with uh, Lawrence about this idea for the Irish Leprechaun movie. And Lawrence likes uh, these works by Hermione uh, templeton uh called Darby O'Gill, the series of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Walt decides, well, once we get this, Id- once we kind of get our feet off the ground with this live-action stuff, combining that three wishes idea with the Leprechaun and, uh, and the, uh, the man going to go in the war – with the elements of traditional Irish folklore from the American Irish author of the Darby O'Gill books, mm-hmm. would probably be the best way to go. How
1: how much um, in in the history of things do you, is has there been the precedent of mining those like little niche? Uh, I guess like literature properties because like there is a thing like because for the longest time I didn't know anything about and I know this is much later but I didn't know anything about like you know Mary Poppins right. and all that kind of stuff but then when you go back and you hear stories like this there is, there is a precedent for you know at least a slight adaptation of yeah. just different literature well, that there was. Actually
0: so that's the thing that the Disney studio would do a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is a, this is a story for another podcast but essentially people don't know that the parent trap is based off a German novel mm. Mm. because it's basically like Walt was looking all around the world. He found this German novel. He had a, you know, he had a translation of it and basically said, here's this obscure German novel, make a movie out of it. Same thing with a favorite of mine, that darn cat was based on kind of a, like a short story that turned into a novel type, one of those types of deals. Right. Uh, so the studio at that time very much, you know, did a lot of, you know, you know, uh, uh, original stuff too. Uh, but even the Shaggy Dog is based off an Italian story, so right? It's well, But I think, but
1: that's the 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 point of where I mean, I'm just saying, like an adaptation of this, you know, this literature material. Because by the time that you know they do make it, it has kind of made a life of its own. Yes, but the it's just interesting that the mm-hmm. originating point is through some sort of either. A direct translation or inspiration from yes. different literature. It's absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that was like a key to what they wanted to do that even if it wasn't like, here's this big adaptation, they like taking the inspiration and then making it their own. It right. It's very mm-hmm. much always kind of the Disney way. Even with, you know, the obviously the animated films, um, similarly, you know, they're based on, lots of them are based on bigger stories, but it's also like, they make it, you know, whatever. Well, true,
1: do. yeah, especially like those, the early ones, which yeah. are all like, you know, Most different public domains and, yeah. um uh, fairy tales and things and, like that and, uh, yeah a
0: lot of novels too stuff yeah. like like uh uh you know 101 Dalmatians was a novel and stuff like that so that
1: I did not know that mm. yeah
0: actually again real quick aside before we get back uh the author of the 101 one, excuse me the author of the 101 Dalmatians novel she has gone on record to say that the movie is much better than her book, mm-hmm. and she actually wrote a sequel that was more inspired by the Disney movie than anything else, because mm-hmm. she was so, like, yeah, they they just basically improved my 101
1: story. Dalmatians again.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's a really weird story, too, because the puppies go in a dream and have to, like, you know, dream world and stuff like that. It's crazy. 101
1: Dalmatians, dream warriors. Yeah.
0: Um. So, again, the idea starts popping around 1930, or sorry, 1950, 1951, when they're doing these British co-productions, uh, where they're filming them and and you know producing them with uh, with British studios to kind of take a little bit of the monetary load off of Disney because they're still trying to recover from the war, uh, even after the success of Cinderella, um, but that all changes again for the studio in 1954 when they do Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, which is their first uh, fully Disney. Uh, live action film, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a big risk. It was the most expensive movie ever made at the time, um, which was also a big deal because they were building Disneyland simultaneously. So they not only were they making their most expensive movie they ever made, they're also in the middle of making Disneyland and making the middle of uh, Sleeping Beauty, which was a nine year odyssey of also the most expensive animated movie. Mm-hmm. Ever made. Uh, so the studio was doing that big sp- spend money to make money, and it paid off for them in spades. So mm-hmm. Disneyland is very successful. 20,000 Leagues is very successful, so Disney starts ramping up his live-action production. And so he once again returns to the Darby O'Gill idea and finally starts to put it into production. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he continues to talk with uh, Lawrence Watkins about doing the script, uh, but as he's doing the script, as they're putting it together, Walt is starting to think about his casting. Um, so for the casting, uh, we're going to get to our casting stuff now because we can and this is what I usually do in these episodes Uh, so we have Albert Sharp as uh, Darby O'Gill who is the lead of this movie Uh, so once he started to do the full production of Darby O'Gill as a a motion picture that he was going to make Walt decided instantly that he was basically going to take all Irish Scottish British actors basically as they say cast out of London instead of Hollywood right uh, so Walt initially wanted a man named Barry Fitzgerald for the role of Darby O'Gill. Uh, Barry Fitzgerald was a legendary Hollywood actor uh, who had been in stuff like Bringing Up Baby and Going My Way, had won an Academy Award for that short. Basically like kind of an actor that went between doing screwball comedy mm. and kind of more dramatic roles. And Walt just thought that it would be a big star, legendary actor, would kind of nail the role of Darby Gill. But unfortunately, by 19, you know, late 1950s, you know, Barry Fitzgerald's heyday was like, uh, he was already kind of an older heyday actor within uh, the thirties, which was when he was making all those types of movies. And he had retired at that point. And Walt tried to say, Hey, we'll, we'll throw some money at you. You know, it's going to be a good time. It's going to be leprechauns and special effects and everything. It's going to be real great, you know, Mm -hmm. in that Walt type of way. Uh, But Barry was like, absolutely uh, not. I'm done with acting essentially. Mm -hmm. So, uh, sorry, Walt. Um, so, Walt had to go back to the drawing board, and he remembered another actor that he saw back when he originally was thinking of the movie in 1947, a man named Albert Sharp, uh, who he saw in a uh, uh, Broadway production of the musical Finnegan's Rainbow, uh, which was making its debut in the late 1940s. And that eventually would be a film by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, so, Walt had in mind Albert Sharp, but the problem was is that Albert Sharp had already also retired from acting. Mm-hmm uh so albert sharp was an actor who he was one of those actors who especially in that era did basically all stage acting he had the occasional film role that he would do usually as a favor or usually just as a kind of a small little bit um but he was very much a stage actor through and through not that he didn't like film but that was just kind of the way that his career went but at this point in you know the late 1950s albert sharp had retired back to ireland and in fact was basically living in like a small cottage in a small town, essentially like kind of away from everything. Uh, But Walt was very eager to at least ask him, you know, ask Mm -hmm. him about the role. So he essentially tracked him down. He started kind of asking around, do you know anything about Albert Sharp? Where can I find him? Basically led him to this small town, led him to Albert Sharp, knocked on the door. Hey, it's Walt Disney. Mm -hmm. We want to talk to you about doing this movie. And eventually like Albert was kind of up and down about it because he had retired but the fact that it was like Walt Disney seeking him out and coming to his door and saying, do you want to be in this movie? He said that he he couldn't refuse that. So he decided to come out of retirement for one more role to do Darby O'Gill. Uh, and also that he felt that the role was very fun mm-hmm. very different than anything he had done before. And he thought he could have a good time with it. Uh, similarly, we also have... Um, jimmy o'day mm-hmm. as king brian of the Leprechauns. yes <laughs> um so jimmy was a actually kind of interesting uh, uh, jimmy was a uh, also a irish actor uh most known for starting his own theater company uh so basically like albert sharp jimmy o'day was very much a stage actor who had the affi- occasional film role um but he had he was most known for starting his own uh, theater company where they would do a bunch of different things where they would do um, like straight up plays and adaptations of stuff. People like Ibsen. Um, they would also do kind of more modernized vaudeville type of things and kind of variety shows where it's kind of like sketch stuff and very silly things. So they were all over the place of terms of what they did, but there was a very popular theater company and Walt went to see uh time they were doing a pantomime and Jimmy was someone who was in the pantomime and Walt was basically like that, you know, that's our that's yeah. our <laughs> Brother. um and and jimmy again was also someone who was happy for the opportunity um and so that was basically our two main actors uh to get to the kind of the rest of the cast it's essentially like walt kind of went through different british television stuff mm-hmm. different british films and kind of found a whole collection of irish actors uh you have uh janet monroe as katie o'gill mm-hmm. uh, darby's daughter um Walt, uh, she was, again, up-and-coming Brit- uh, Irish actress um, who was doing a lot of BBC kind of anthology series, just kind of, you know, they would just like the, you know, murder of the week or whatever it would be where they she'd just she used to play a character. Um, and Walt saw her in one of these things and it thought she was so great that she, Walt ended up signing her to a five-year contract with the studio at uh, which she would do three films and a television mini series for the studio. So Walt was very much on her. And similarly, Walt saw a replay of Requiem for a Heavyweight mm-hmm. on British television. Oh. Uh, saw Sean Connery. Oh in okay. That role. So so
1: a classic, like, wait a minute, who's that guy? Yes <laughs> Um
0: and, and brought Sean Connery into the role. Oh, of, okay. Of that. So um now he uh I should mention too that Connery had been signed at this point. Um because this was the day of studio contracts right. in the way because now we have franchise contracts in mm-hmm. this day and age. We have like Marvel signs you for a five film deal or whatever. It is. Right. But back in this day, if you remember, um, you know, to you know, classic film stuff, is that you you had a contract with the studio. Right. Where like, okay, we're going to sign. You know, we have exclusive rights to Connery, or we have exclusive rights to Cary Grant. And yeah. The studio could loan you out to other people. Um, but basically, did like,
1: they do that with every everyone, or was that no, just the, mostly the, the, with the, actors? The actors. And yeah, the because actors. now, and I don't even think it's like like a steadfast thing now but I do know that I believe studios do that more with uh behind the scenes yes. talent like mm-hmm. they they try to get and it's not like oh they own you but there's definitely like a sense of like for instance like Warner Brothers really well, wants to keep hold of Christopher Nolan right. like but like usually, they want
0: to usually those deals are are right of first refusal right mm-hmm. so basically like it's a con like today in this day and age you have a contract with a Nolan or an Abrams and the, the deal is you bring all your projects to us first. If we don't want to do it, then you can bring it to other studios, right. but mm-hmm. we have right of first refusal. Yeah. Uh, but back in the day, it was a lot more actors that had those types of deals. And Connery was assigned to 20th century Fox. Uh, but Connery had said that 20th century Fox signed him not too long after Requiem for a heavyweight, but basically did nothing but loan him out. That mm-hmm. they, that the studio basically kind of got him and then did nothing with him. Uh, so Walt couldn't sign him to a contract, but he thought that Connery he thought that Connery had potential. So, um, Connery remembers the first day uh, he went to the Disney lot, and he basically said that for, there was some mix-up where he wasn't initially on the list of people that could get in. So he had some issue with security, but eventually they let him in. He went up to Walt. Walt took him on a tour of the studio, and basically, he's you know kind of because this was also to be frank is that this was connery's first hollywood production right yeah so he had done you know the british kind of british films and he had done mostly british television but this was first time on a, yeah. on a, on a wall on and, a I, and i wonder wall.
1: what that's like for him too especially like with his um you know his bodybuilding background and him being more fascinated or at least like have an opinion about you know american uh yeah. the american side of it so now he's coming into like you right. know uh like basically american cinema at this point
0: and uh and Connery always, you know, like most people of that era, Walt uh, Connery had nothing but great things to say about Walt Disney, mm-hmm. uh, and he basically had a, a wonderful time uh, doing the film. And uh, he was always impressed by how much interest Walt took in like his young actors, not in the way that I, you know, not not in the sexual way. No, <laughs> I think I, th- I think yeah. we got it. But basically, Like he, Walt was very much like. Like, uh, like up and coming actors. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should say that. Yeah. That's a best better way to put it. Yeah. yeah. But, he, but, he, but Walt was very much like, you know, uh, always involved with the production and always right, on set right. and, and basically making sure, you know, like giving his own advice. Um, to the actors and It's stuff like so
1: that. funny Like just going back And like thinking of it Because now it's like More of a You know We have like Disney proper And then you have like Different branches of yeah. the studio. You have your Lucasfilm And then you have Marvel And then basically It's like uh, different heads of each of the... like Kathleen Kennedy is overseeing Star Wars. And Kevin P Feige is
0: P, P. Doctor and uh, Jennifer Lee are doing animation yeah. right now, and
1: Kevin Feige is doing Marvel. Where so it's just funny like they're like having that more uh, I guess that like early Lucasy like yeah. or not not Lucasy but like like a heyday of like Lucasfilm and George Lucas like going around basically just approving of everything and just yeah. being that one guy.
0: Um, and I think again, like I said, like what's what people forget is this house. Really small time for as much as they were doing, as much as they were expanding in the fifties to being from being just an animation studio to doing live action to creating the first true theme park and right, stuff like yeah. that. That the studio was still like the thing about Disney is that it was always a studio, especially within the Walt era, that was like a, a failure or two away from being on the brink of extinction. Right, and there are so many times in that studio's history where it's like oh, if this film fails then we're done with this or we can't do this or you know that sort of thing it was very much a small time mom and pop uh, production that was doing big things right and it was very it's very interesting to kind of look back at the history of that studio and see like how much amazing stuff that they did knowing that the next flop could really put a damper on the studio and i'm sure
1: with such a small operation doing so many big things that Every worker who worked on everything was treated with the utmost like respect and time and compensation. And that's when the crickets start. What? I, I have no idea what you're. Doing. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. It's like you can't. You, you just realistically listen. I like I work in post. This happens today. There's no way that you're small and you do that many things and everybody's happy Yeah, no, <laughs> behind I mean, the you're scenes. Not, <laughs> you're not wrong. But, no, but, it, but it's but also like I, – I, You know, that's just like kind of like uh, – it is one of the things like that is about it because when you think about it, it's you, – you just don't think about it because when you think about what the entire company was able to succeed with their projects, mm-hmm. it is extra- extraordinarily impressive. Um, and, you know, that is just one of the things where it's like, you know, you have such innovation being hap- happening and then, you know, there's are, are those little details about yeah. like the, the behind the scenes of pe- of people working. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, uh you know, it's the it's the blood, sweat and tears, some willingly given some given because it's the job. Yeah. And uh, that is the history of making movies.
0: Yeah. And I think like the, also the, the Disney studio, I'm sure has that history, but it's also something that there was like a lot of you know autonomy given to a lot of those people that were working on those movies too so i Oh sure no as, no, no no definitely and and like there there definitely was points of oh listen and, the and the creative
1: autonomy is not something yeah. that i was relating that's to true. i'm talking about man hours yes, man like true. i'm talking about doing doing all that yeah
0: especially because at at this point too a lot of artists were kind of going between doing like animation stuff yeah. and still doing works for the parks too, guess, so.
1: well the, the point being is that we have all the time and money in the world now yeah and it and still happens yeah. so like yeah. you know just all things being equal yeah
0: yeah uh, so, basically, before we get into the movie proper, I do want to talk about a little bit of its production. Uh, most of the movie was shot in Los Angeles on the Disney lot and also within you know different kind of fields and stuff around mm-hmm. L.A., Anaheim, all that sort of stuff that they would film at. Um, most notable, probably, story-wise about the movie are the special effects, um, which were very much... Uh, the rest of the casting was basically again more Irish actors coming in for you know a Hollywood production. Right, everybody moved to Los Angeles, and you know basically it was like a classic, just kind of very timely, good Disney production. Um, other after Twenty Thousand Leagues, which was notoriously a a budget ballooning production, mostly because their Walt was very much eager to just say like if you need to make changes, just use the money because we want to make this good. Uh, but the productions after that were pretty more tight. Um, So Disney productions were pretty known for being pretty tight Mm -hmm. operations, um, especially with their own. What was nice about Disney, too, was at the time, Disney was the only studio in Hollywood to have its own in-house effects team, Mm -hmm. whereas most of the other studios, when they were doing those special effects, would hire out to different studios. Um, After uh, starting the live-action stuff with 1950, uh, Disney and his right-hand special effects man, Peter Ellenshaw, uh started their own wing of the studio uh to specifically develop new special effects and to p- put those special effects in the movies mm-hmm. uh so Peter Shaw basically did a whole lot of work to make the movie work to make the uh leprechauns look small and darby look big and stuff like that right and uh uh Peter Ellenshaw was most known probably is most known for his matte paintings um if you if people don't know how matte paintings at that point work it's basically you you put the camera up against glass, or and you basically paint the glass so that the camera looks through it and kind of combines with the whatever the background is. Right, right. So it's like if you're building like the ruins of a castle, you know, you shoot on the hill, you put the camera to the the glass, and then Ellen Shaw would basically paint in the the ruins of the castle mm-hmm. so that it all looked normal. Uh, so that was a lot of the work. And if you ever want to look it up, I mean this. I know the 20,000 Leagues documentary has a lot of it and the Mary Poppins documentary has a lot of his, his kind of the differences. But basically it's like, you know, the town of Darby O'Gill's in, it's like it's a set and then like you paint in the church, you paint in roofs, and it looks great. Um, but the main thing that they do is forced perspective. That's how they mostly achieve uh, the, the leprechaun effects in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so how that essentially works is that most of the sets were kind of built twice. There's the regular old set uh, that Darby is going to stand on. And then four feet behind it, there's the leprechaun set, uh, which is basically everything's a little bit bigger. And then the leprechaun, or like King Brian, would be on that set four feet away. Then they would basically line up the sets in the camera so it, you know, looks like it's all one big set, so that Darby is towering over King Brian, but they're actually four feet away from each other. Uh, so basically, uh, Albert Sharp and Jimmy O'Day never got to see each other uh, when they were acting because they also they were basically looking at. Thin air because Mm -hmm. they were trying to line up their eyesight right um uh, for the scene in which uh darby is in the leprechaun cave they had to do a little bit more work for that sort of thing so there is a shot where darby is you know you see darby's feet and all the leprechaun looking up at him uh that was achieved by having darby walk on a platform four feet in the air uh and so one side of him were actually actual leprechauns um and then they would paint the ground to match up, you know, the platform on top. And then on the other side of him, there were little puppets that they turned to make it look like there were leprechauns on both sides. Uh, probably the most insane one. And I still kind of, am, I, this was on the DVD and I was kind of reeling from about it. I don't know how I'm going to describe it. So there's also a sequence in that cave sequence, mm-hmm. that leprechaun cave sequence, where you see kind of a straight on shot of Darby walking forward and then you have the leprechauns on both sides right Mm -hmm. and so how they did this one so basically you have darby on that upper platform right and then you have the leprechauns basically and the leprechaun set adjacent to it and so what they ended up doing was they put a mirror in front of darby right that reflects uh the leprechaun stuff down below right Mm -hmm. and then they carve out the mirror they strip away all the Uh, like the reflective stuff on the mirror. So now it looks like Darby's standing in the middle Mm. of these leprechauns. And then Ellen Shaw finishes up with a matte painting that kind of hides kind of the um, weird scraping away of the glass and stuff like that. Mm. So it's basically like a lot of work just to get like this one little shot. And that was very much like the, the Disney special effects team at the studio. Because the director of this movie, which is Robert Stevenson, who I'm a very big fan of. He would go on to direct Mary Poppins, but directs like That Darn Cat, Absent Minded Professor, Old Yeller, stuff like mm. that. Okay. Uh, he was basically the major Disney director of that period. Um, and he's actually a director I go to bat for as one of my kind of underrated favorites because, again, the Disney directors you don't really think about, but there's a really nice set of them that do those live action stuff at the studio. But he was kind of known, and this kind of helped him become known as the special effects director. Because he was very much eager to make sure everything was right. Mm -hmm. Everything looked good. So when they eventually do Mary Poppins, it's Stevenson that has all this stuff. And Connery also was a very big fan of Robert Stevenson. And he felt that, like, of his early career, even including the Bond stuff, that Stevenson was one of the best directors he worked with. Because Mm -hmm. uh, Stevenson was a director that actually liked to work with his actors as well. And Connery thought that his direction just generally was very good. um, And stuff like that. So... Um, But basically, that's kind of, again, after 20,000 Leagues, they're very much more so into the smoother production. So Mm -hmm. this movie just kind of gets made, essentially, right? for release in 1959. Um, The last thing I'll kind of say is that Walt really wanted to have a lot of fun with this one. Uh, So within the marketing, he, as you probably saw at the beginning of the movie, uh, within the marketing itself... It's basically implied that King Brian is a real leprechaun that chose to act in the movie. Uh, oh, that's funny. Yeah. So there's a little thing at the beginning of the movie that says thanks to King Brian and all the all the leprechauns for choosing to appear and us uh-huh. tell the story. Um, so all the leprechaun actors and, and Jimmy O'Day got paid a little bit extra, so so they wouldn't be they so they got paid a little bit extra, but in in reference that they wouldn't necessarily be credited and all this stuff, uh-huh. which is more important for Jimmy O'Day because. This is also the time of very Wait, short- you mean like
1: so they were just gonna be it was there was they weren't gonna be credited as like the actual okay. Actors, yeah. br- It was just going to be like as if the Leprechauns were yes. real, yeah. So they kind of Blair Witched it a little bit, a little where bit, they yeah. like tell the all the bit. actors to be like just stay hidden, yeah. And we're going to pretend you're um, actually dead.
0: So it's funny because Jimmy O'Day like is still in the opening credits, but within all the press releases and mm-hmm. stuff like that, and all the interviews, it was like King Brian just like let us film him to the point where for the Disneyland show, Walt did a little bit of acting himself, mm-hmm. where he shot a show called I Met the King, uh, I captured the King of the Leprechauns, and. It's basically like Walt is telling a story and acting out the story of him meeting the real Darby O'Gill and King Brian and convincing King Brian to be in this movie um, with him. And it's a really fun episode of the the Disneyland show. And it's it's Walt kind of having a lot of fun with himself. Uh, And Jimmy O'Day is still referenced in the opening credits. But, again, within all the press releases and interviews that Walt and his cast did about the movie, they just kind of had fun and pretended that – or acted as as if the Leprechauns really did, you know, uh, act in this movie. Got it. Cool. And uh, that is basically Sean Connery's life. That is the production of Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And I think it's about time we talk it's about time
1: the time to see those two worlds mesh as we get introduced to Sean Connery in this movie. Yes.
0: Have you ever seen the seagulls? The fly and all the, heather, all the crimson sails on Galway Bay. The fishermen unfurled. Oh, the earth is filled with beauty, and it's gathered all together in the form and face and
1: dainty grace of a pretty Irish girl. So, Nick, recap this movie. What's this movie about? Let's get this out of the way. Okay.
0: So, uh, it is about a man named Darby O'Gill. That
1: son of a bitch.
0: (laughs) Um... Who's basically a caretaker for, uh, you know, this rich man's manor house in this small uh, Irish right. town, mm-hmm. and he's basically simultaneously kind of uh, at kind of uh, he's trying to capture the king of the leprechauns, which is King Brian, while also dealing with the fact that he's about to be replaced uh, as the caretaker of this house by Sean Connery. Uh, so he's kind of you know trying to you know protect his daughter from the news. He's trying to kind of you know better his life through finding king brian and essentially going all these little misadventures in mm-hmm. that realm right so that's the movie yeah
1: um so uh yeah that that that's the movie and that's the end of the episode I yeah guess. That's the end of, yeah no no it's, it's it's just uh you know i'm just trying to figure i'm just trying to figure out like the uh the the best way to continue this
0: i'll, I'll start yeah. i'll start with my general thoughts so yes i am a very big disney fan and a couple years ago two years ago actually i went on this kind of journey of going through the disney live action uh, studio films of the walt disney era because that was really my one little blind spot like i knew at that time you know two years ago i knew all about the animation all about the music all about the theme parks mm-hmm. um but like the walt era live action so stuff like darby o'gill and the original shaggy dog and stuff like that was just stuff like it was a little bit of a blind spot um especially because it's hard with these movies because obviously with the way that the studio has gone on especially post-walt into the eighties where they really doubled down on the animation and the park stuff that this kind of live action stuff kind of falls to the wayside uh, with the occasional exception of like people remember a parent trap or Mary Poppins, obviously. So I was, I've always very excited for the share of these movies because I think there's a lot of hidden gems within kind of the Disney live action canon.
1: Yeah. What is it? Do you think this specifically about like, the, cause here, it, cause my feelings about it, it's like an enjoyable, um, you know a piece of that D- that Disney family friendly live action archive of yeah. those early like uh, cuz this movie came out 50- 1959 so 60 59. years ago so around yeah. that like 50s, 60s era of films like this yeah. very very breezy family fun affair so like so what what is it about this era of or these types of movies that that you see that that you seem to like so much,
0: I I think there's just it's really just kind of that Disney charm that mm-hmm. kind of grabs me, um because especially because I've not only gone into the live live, action, live actions film stuff, but you know I've gone into some more of the Disneyland TV show stuff. So stuff like the Tomorrowland series of like Mars and Beyond and stuff like that, which is something I think everybody should look up. It's a great episode the Disneyland show, uh, but stuff like the Davy Crockett TV series. Um, Swamp Fox and Annette, as you've seen me watch Annette, Annette, which is a it, which is like a Mickey Mouse Club serial. and what I think is just a common there's just this sort of just this kind of Disney charm mm-hmm. that kind of grabs me. This the the way that the tone and the way that those movies present themselves, mm. um, in terms of kind of there's something about just everything that I like about Disney. So like these kind of underrated songs and underrated scores and like these actors just kind of doing kind of little whimsical little sequences right it's just like there's just something about cliche that sounds like that disney magic that well, like i just kind of find that really connects it to the entire canon that connects it to what i like about the parks and the film and the animated films which is the stuff that people know
1: what 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 is this movie classified as genre wise fantasy is it fantasy yeah. or is it like a comedy is this like fantasy w- comedy. would you would this be a comedy the, the the interesting thing that i found while watching this um was there is like i mean it's it's just very breezy it's a, it's a very yeah. breezy it's very loose on um it's, it's loose on like plot. And I don't mean like it has no plot. It's just like, you know, it has its story, it's telling, but it's like more of just kind of like a little bit more episodic. Like he ends up in like, like we, we show the problem, we show the characters, but then he ends up in uh in the leprechaun cave. And then, that starts a little bit of a musical set piece itself and then it like moves on and then it, right. it, it's kind of yeah. like, and then at the end of it, it's just kind of like uh it's very much like a fairy tale. Like yeah. it's very much like then he learns his lesson at the end of the day and he goes through all of his shenanigans. It's like, uh, actually, but, but it's yeah. funny because nobody would make that. Nobody makes that oh, movie exactly. now.
0: And you know what? I think that's kind of the case too, about why I kind of especially love these little hidden gems. Mm-hmm. Cause there's so much of them like, that are just weird and wacky in their own special 50s and 60s way. Right. I mean, I've talked about, you know, stuff like, you know, kind of classic other Disney stuff like, you know, That Darn Cat, which is one of my favorite films ever now, and like Mighty Professor and Search of Castaways, which is like kind of all these things where it's like they go different genres. Some are more epic, some are more comedy, but there's just a, something specific about the way they make these movies that is just so. You know, unique to that period, and I think especially with unique to that Disney period, right? Which is kind of you know that '50s era of the studio, which might secretly be my favorite overall era of the studio as well. Kind of that '50s and the '60s when they're doing like Alice and Lady and the Tramp and and uh, doing the Disneyland show and doing you know into the '60s with kind of the underwater animation and stuff. I think that probably might be my favorite area of era of the studio, and I think it's because like. And I think it's very shown in Darby O'Gill is that the, the studio is basically just like, we're just going to do what we want right. and just make a movie and we hope people enjoy it. Right. Or we make a show and pe- people enjoy it.
1: Right, but it's just funny because – I it's just interesting to me because if you made a movie – if anybody, studio independent, made kind of like a series of movies like this right now, like I would – yeah, I would guarantee that there's a there's the feeling that I had with this movie is that if you made it nowadays like people wouldn't get what the point of the movie is mm-hmm. like what is the purpose behind a movie like this yeah so like I and that's not a knock on the movie I do think like if you made this movie today it would just have to be a comedy like, it would have to be a if, comedy starring Steve Carell, and it's about, like, you know, oh, man, he's down in his luck, and then Buddy finds a leprechaun to to help him out. Like, and yeah. then it's, like, a big lesson – like, it's definitely a lot more traditionally narrative-driven mm-hmm. where – um, so that was kind of, like, the the sense that I got from, like, watching it was that I did feel like – because, like, when you think about it, like, whether you have like a big movie, it's got to be like you know a big movie, yeah. or like people who are making smaller movies, like, you gotta have a point. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, and I, you know, I didn't want to say that because I don't want to say even like if the, the movie. point
0: is having no point. You have a point, right?
1: Yeah, it, but it's definitely a movie that you know by the end of it, like, oh, the 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 uh, author of the piece had something to to say and mm-hmm. everything whereas like you know that's not necessarily how this movie is yeah. structured it's
0: more and, like a, it's just uh you know
1: and especially kinda... in in context to that there were many other movies like this like you know another one that you did show me that i i liked quite a bit was uh that darn cat yeah the 65 uh, version right yeah um you know, I'm sure I've never seen the original Parent Trap, but um, like, well, like, you, this is kind of going a little bit off topic, but the only Parent Trap I've ever seen is the Jamie Lee Curtis, Lindsay Lohan one.
0: No, you're thinking of a Freaky Friday. Freaky Friday, damn it. That's what,
1: but uh, Lindsay Lohan, I am, right? Right, you're right. That is, is a Parent Lohan Trap is, uh, one. uh
0: Dennis, Dennis Quaid. Right, yeah. yeah. So,
1: but like, if from my understanding of that movie, but there was a Disney Freaky Friday, right? Yes. Yeah. But it's like, it just seems like when you watch, like, when they over time that those movies become and again for lack of a better word a little bit more purposeful and which like and then here's the big point whereas almost these movies the ones that you're showing me now are more just vehicles of whimsy yes and then and
0: that's actually not a bad comparison to the original parent trap too because again the 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 parent trap is more sweeping it's like kind of like oh like we're really going together where it's just like you know, the original Parent Trap is a lot more breezy in that way, right? But is also so charming.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of like charming antics, and and not to say that they lack any heart or emotion. Like they eventually get to the point where it's like, and this is where I'm sad. Like it's like, yeah. and then and then we learn the lesson. But it, I will definitely say that I think after rambling, that these movies have are way more whim, uh, vehicles of whimsy than anybody would make nowadays. Like n- now, these would be like, like. You would you would find like something done exactly this way in like short form, yeah, or like on like online or like on mm-hmm. like you know whatever yeah. other,
0: uh, um, yeah, it's, things. It's they kind of would a do. lost yeah. little art, and it. it's kind of fun to see these types of movies. Yeah, I mean, it,
1: it is it is interesting because I don't even think I'm not even coming from a position of one way's good or the other because. I think that like I said, if you made this movie today, it would just have to be a straight up comedy with a point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with that. And this movie, you know, has its own little kind of like f- uh fantasy morality tale esque thing in, in, in at the by the end of it. Um, but it was just interesting just to kind of watch and to into and, and, and to think of yeah. it that way. Mm. Um so yeah, and that so that that was the the big thing. And then like um, I'm trying to think of like anything for for the movie itself. Um yeah, it was just it, it was just it was just fascinating. Uh it, it's always just fun to see uh just yeah. these these old things. I mean, definitely uh uh it's it's only an hour and a half. Yeah. Uh which is like um which is always fun because uh I've been getting into this period now where it's like I've been kind of like off and on seeing movies that are like 2 hours over and then like I see like an hour and a half movie next and then a 2 plus hour movie after that and then uh, I don't really have a passionate opinion about it the, like most people do mm-hmm. but you definitely notice uh, yeah. when a movie is over two hours or like regardless of like even like movies I think are good mm-hmm. like and I like and I wouldn't change a thing I'm like man Wolf of Wall Street's a long movie it's all very long yeah yeah, yeah and it's like and I and I wouldn't change a thing and I love that movie but it's, it's very long and then like this on the other hand is very much like oh you go in you know it's like an hour and a half and, and I guess that leads to the breezy nature of it where there's really not too much else it's like trying to tell or do other than this nice little yeah. tale.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, want to discuss anything else like the plot more? Uh,
1: I mean, I mean, the plot
0: is is, like, is any, fair. Any, like yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, like thinking I'm trying to like some of the things that you were talking about. Um, it, it was it was really fun. Uh, to see the achieving of the uh the the leprechaun uh, effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, th- those are those were always fun. Um. some uh, they're always impressive there are some that are like a little bit more dated than others yeah there's one where uh darby is uh like grabbing uh the the was it king brian is that his name yeah uh he's grabbing him and then the hand that's like around him is clearly a fake hand yeah uh my personal favorite was when uh he's getting attacked by the cat
0: when uh king brian's getting attacked by the cat
1: yeah and which by the way may be one of the better effects that they do to achieve achieve that in the movie but it is funny because clever editing and framing of it it doesn't draw attention to it but i guess because i'm kind of looking for it uh just because it's like i'm interested in how they achieved it it's definitely like a guy with like a like a like a cat arm on it like it's so so i i i did like that um uh i don't like talking horses I, I, like, that's just my personal preference. I don't like when horses do that lip thing. It always just bugs me. Well, it's, it's a puka, Will. Yeah. A what? It's a puka. What's a puka?
0: It's a demon. It, they talk about it in the movie. Oh, but I'm just saying the horse, like, well, yeah. the horse when he when he but does the, his, the like, the horse lip is thing. a demon. Yeah, but I
1: don't, I still don't, you still don't have to do the lip thing. Okay, I don't, Fair I don't life. like it. I don't All like right. it. I don't like Mr. Ed. I don't like <laughs> any of that shit. <laughs> I was like, that's why it's like, you know, that's why George Miller had the right idea when they did Babe. It's like, I'm just just animate those little mouths don't like do the weird like yeah um so i liked um so i i did like that um i thought like uh i the the coolest effect was definitely the um the the angel of death Oh the banshee yeah the banshee Banshee Uh, the banshee stuff was awesome the banshee
0: and the and the coach debauer were both really good Um, oh and i i thought like the the
1: leprechaun magic was done very well yes um so there there was that the one thing i i did not like um that and and this is all the movies of this era they do that I hate whimsical xylophone music. It's the one thing that just has not aged well with me. I hate it. Like so like at one point like when they're like uh you know doing a little prank on him, the leprechauns and yeah. they like they like shoot lightning at his like little stick and then yeah. they start like hitting him with the stick and there's like this I'm like, "Oh god." Like I just, I will say out of all of this, that is the one, one thing that I go back and watch movies like this that I, I cannot stand.
0: <laughs> I I just like, "Come on, man." <laughs> um, so I, I'll talk a bit more about it. So uh I I'll enjoy um the uh I think like a especially especially in a movie like this, uh, kind of an older, kind of whimsical movie, that I think like the a cast of characters is definitely necessary to kind of bring it to and um I definitely, I definitely enjoy like the little relationship that uh, Darby and King Brian have with each other, mm-hmm. and I think they play off each other well, especially considering that they're not actually looking at each other; that mm-hmm. they're basically playing off like looking at a visual cue and just hearing the other person. Yeah, that
1: talk. that's definitely a key factor that they definitely nailed
0: yeah. in, in the film. Uh, but I think it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of that rivalry where the two care about each other, but like also like they will you know, play dirty, es- essentially. Right, right, And I do think that that very much works. Like, it's very much like, you know, you get the early kind of flashback to when, you know, Darby first captures King Brian and King Brian tricks him into, you know, within the realm of this movie, you get three wishes from a leprechaun, but if you make a fourth wish, you lose everything. And so you would get that flashback where it's like, hey, you know, King Brian tricks him into making the fourth wish and he Darby loses everything that he just wished for. But then once he finds out he's getting replaced by... Um, Sean Connery that, you know, King Brian sends the, the horse demon Puka right to like, you know, bring him to the cave of the leprechauns. And then, you know, King Brian's like, well, you know, I know you're getting replaced and I don't want you to be out you know on your feet or whatever. So, you know, you could, you're, you're going to be with us and we're going to take good care of you. Right you, to, right. you share in all our treasures and our rivalry and stuff like yeah. that. And, so, and, and, and and
1: speaking of the relationships um, in kind of bringing into why we're talking about this movie yes. is that I, I did think that, um, uh, what's his uh, like Sean Connery's character? Yeah. Uh, like you know him coming in and just the dynamic that they created between the four, the the three of them with him and Darby and the daughter, yeah, and just that whole situation. I just think that really meshed together very well. Oh yeah,
0: I think cause I think there's a couple things about it. I think that I it, like like I think like Darby and Katie had that classic like older father kind of daughter like you know, right kind of that kind of the they'd, even. The, because I think another thing about movies like this, um, especially this era of the movies, is that their their instinct is to they don't do too much with anything, which I think works. Mm-hmm. Like I think like again, if you get I,
1: there, it there's one part of there's one aspect of this movie where I think that is the most apparent. Yeah, but we'll, I'll get to that. Like, but when I you're th- done.
0: but I think like in like a modern movie, you really like hammer home at the beginning, like here's the relationship between Darby and Katie, and like this is their dynamic. Whereas this one, I think like. There's just a naturalness to like how they interact with each other. That's and-
1: true. But I will say but but to just to on the opposite point of that, it's actually quite a bit of time before they share screen time with each other right like with darby and his daughter like yeah because like there's a
0: little bit of an extended like because she runs out to grab him right like from the from the bar or from the tavern because like you know his boss is there right but there's a kind of an extended like she runs out to grab him but then you get the whole story with darby and
1: right yeah so it's like and they and they cover that They, they cover it in the movie what the relationship is but you know it is one of those things where it it does uh, it, it's a little bit before there's an extended like scene with s- them. Yeah. That's that true,
0: but I just feel like there's enough of that. Like you know, she's kind of doing work, but she's like, oh my, my father's at the you know, my, right? My, my right. father's. you know, She's like lying, like, hey, my father's actually cutting the weeds, but he's actually at the bar, and like you know, she's running after him and stuff like that. And so, right? I think it's just like there's stuff like that where they just you just you, there's an. I think sometimes today there's an instinct to like really like hammer that home and do like a lot of like here's like exactly what's going on. But I think like there's enough for me to be like here's I can just read into it and I think it works for me.
1: Right. Um I think the I think the one thing that the movie does kind of like have but doesn't really do I mean I guess it does it does a lot with it but I think in retrospect thinking of it I think like the the thing with are quote unquote villains of the piece, yeah. where it's like Pony the, Sugru, yeah, yeah. Where it's like this old lady and her son, and she wants him to have the job of take of yeah ma- of taking uh managing like the manor, yeah, and wants him to marry the girl. That that was something where I'm like, probably not my favorite part it of pr- it.
0: It probably is the weakest. Now I think the- it, it's
1: it's it's slight. It's it's not invasive. It's Non-invasive baggage on the movie, yeah. I think, where it's like they kind of do it, but like even like I, he, the guy gets his comeuppance at the end, and then like they try to he d- tries to do this thing where he frames uh, uh, Sean Connery, and that kind of doesn't really go anywhere. Um, yeah. So I mean, so th- that was something where it's yeah. like it's fine; it I, adds like another dynamic to the story. But
0: I do, th- I do think though that uh, Kieran Moore, who plays Pony Sugru, yeah, uh, he. I don't know if he achieves it fully but at least his face he has a great that fucking guy he, face. No, he
1: he he's perfectly cast like yeah. don't get me wrong he's like, like in he's the character very much, he's yeah. very
0: much has a that fucking guy face where yeah. he's just like mugging and he's like yeah no 100 percent. yeah and he's like stealing whiskey and stuff like that yeah and, definitely um, but uh I, I I would not disagree I think for me it's one of those things that it just it kind of just works for what the movie is it's like you don't like I'm also the opinion that you don't need to do too much with them, but you're right; they're more so non-invasive than anything else. Right. It's just like a thing to kind of get that point. But I'm also like, I'm also that thing where it's like, yeah, these these live-action Disney movies definitely have villains sometimes, but I usually those those antagonist characters are always kind of you know in the background in some form or another. Right, um, right. So I think like you know even, but I mean like there there are better examples of it. Um, you know, like stuff like the original Parent Trap and um even like that darn guy with the mobsters and stuff right like right
1: it's just like because like this time around like you know it's kind of like he's like he's just like an asshole who's hanging around yeah. like there's no like because sometimes in a movies like this there's like a ticking clock or like, right. there's like, like where it's
0: like well like you know but it's it's more so like she thinks like the mother thinks that she can get you know her son this which I, the only other thing i liked about it that i think like you know is not totally expanded upon but I kind of liked is that the mother was really kind of pushing this on her son a little bit, mm-hmm. whereas it's just like, yeah, like you, you can do this. You can. You oh can yeah, you got
1: there. the sense he was a little like a little thick headed, yeah. and, and things yeah. like that. Like yeah. now he
0: was still a creep and stuff like that, but and then suitably like made him like you yeah, oh, know yeah, Katie doesn't want to be with Pony. It's a Pony Sugru is a good name though. Yeah. <laughs> I do like that
1: name. Um, um, but so I want to talk about Sean Connery since of that course, is because that's why we're here. Yeah, that's why we're here. So. It was very interesting seeing him in this movie, and I got very big like I actually got very big, like, um, Harrison Ford vibes from him, especially like knowing like in the sense of knowing where his career is gonna go and that he was gonna become James Bond. Like, you kind of like he kinda has this like, you know, decent decent looking guy but kind of like has this like adorkable quality to him as well and it reminds me of like when you see like those earlier like pre like Star Wars like videos of like Harrison Ford or like uh, and and not to say they're like you know dorky or geeky, but there is kind of like they're like oh they're like you could definitely tell like why the ladies would like him because yeah. it's like oh and like he's so it's- he's so good looking and handsome, but he's like oh he's but he's kind of adorable yeah. too. Like, yeah, and yeah. it's like
0: it's also because like with the same like Harrison's not a bad example because for both of them it's kind of like you see them in these early works, but it's really before they develop that persona that right. makes them who they are. Like because ford and solo and and like ford and solo and connery and bond are very much like they kind of form that type of at least that initial persona right they're actually not too bad to like compare in general because they both kind of let their careers evolve eventually and then they both kind of do the old man thing at some point or another um but i do think that it's very much in that realm where it's like i think when i see connery in this movie i think it's one of those there's if- one of those things where it's like it's hard that because we have the gener- we had the benefit of hindsight where we know he becomes a star right, right. after this. But I do think there's as elements of the movie of just like kind of again the the look and the charm that he has. Uh, that you can see, okay, this guy could be something. That well, he, it, it he has, like, if you know, if he per- pursues this, he has a chance to be something big.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, like, another thing is, like, there's this, especially, like, here, there's this lack of smugness to the character that, yeah. that could be there. Uh, and especially, like, if we're making that comparison between... Um, Connery and Ford like uh especially in their characters like you know with uh Bond and Han Solo respectively is that both of those characters uh are best when played by that character but also are like you know seem fallible and Mm -hmm. like uh you know and you know mess up and like are very human in that way like like one of the things like my favorite you know Connery performance as Bond is never say never again because they make him a guy who you know also gets caught off guard and like Mm -hmm. you know he can be the butt of the joke sometimes and the best han solo is when you know we like han solo because and we like indiana jones to a certain degree because they fuck up a lot like like,
0: especially right
1: yeah but these are characters that aren't just like you know they're They're not superhuman yeah they're not superhuman they go in they they like you know solve the problem and like they're gonna
0: win at the end of the day but they are gonna make a mistake right and
1: but i think the reason that the best versions of those characters, or when that happens, speaks to what I see in Connery a little bit in this one, where, you know, n- nice strapping young lad, but, you know, seems like a normal guy who it can be the butt of the joke.
0: He's like a normal guy who could be butt of the joke and, and you know, is kind of... And just doesn't seem
1: smug. I no, think that yeah. was, like, the big well, thing. Well, he's
0: very much concerned because, like, the, part of the point is that, like, the, 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 the lord comes in and brings in Connery. Uh, which is Michael McBride's character's name. And he's telling Darby, like, listen, you're old, you know, you think, you're not working as hard as you used to. We're going to basically replace you with this guy. We need to swing the younger man around here. Yeah. So we're basically like, hey, we're going to give you two weeks, you know, and, you know, we're going to give you two weeks. And then after that, you can go ahead and, and live in this place rent-free, for, you know, for the rest of your days. relax. Right. And then Darby's, like, doesn't want to give up that life.
1: Right. It's like, what am I going to do? Yeah. I, yeah. And so
0: he basically convinces michael mcbride to be like listen like just pretend that you know we're bringing you on his help and then i'll tell her at some point yes. i i
1: should also say like this was some of connery's best acting in the movie because the if, if, of all the things that he does in the movie the one thing that i did 100 believe that like th- he was a guy who's like seemed like pretty bummed like that he was taking this old guy's job at least initially yeah. so when he's like sitting standing there and they're like you know darby and the and you know the um uh the what's what's his name? Like the owner or whatever.
0: Oh yeah, there's the, the I, I forget the name, but yeah, like, but like the, the, the 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 rich guy. The, the Lord. The
1: Lord. Yeah. So it's like when they're when they're talking like, you know, Connery has like this kind of like expression on his face where he's like, Oh man, I didn't know I was gonna be taking like this old man's job and yeah. now he's now he's not gonna be able to work and he's gotta like move out. Like and so and you know, he still goes like he's like, Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it could take two weeks. It could be more depending yeah, on what you did. And or I or... thought that was some of like actually his best acting to yeah. make him very Sympathetic,
0: Yeah, very li- – like, he, he is likable, I yeah, think, mm-hmm. very much so. And I'm also one – you know, we've definitely, like – I've had a lot of bond relationships. Uh, and I think, like uh, – because obviously one of the things that this movie does is it pushes the relationship between the daughter, Katie, and Sean Connery's character. Yes. And I'm also I've, – I've gotten to a point where there's just little things that, like, again, maybe probably not 100% intentional, but I kind of liked that – there it really isn't, like, they – there isn't that, like, really push, I guess. I mean, how do I put this? There very much is, again, a naturalness to just, like, you know, they're not, like, all over each other right away. Sure, You know, sure. it's very much like she – kind. Of, they kind of have nice little conversations, but then, you know, she does the things like, I've no, before I've known you more than a day, you're Mr. McBride, Mr. McBride. But there's still, like, a little bit of flirtatious. Yeah, story. yeah. And even, like, when, like, they – because part of the thing is that now I'll get to more of this in a little bit, but that like, you know, Darby eventually does capture King Brian again and he gets three wishes and then like, you know, King Brian's doing all this stuff to try to get out of it. And so one of the ways he's trying to get out of it is basically, hey, if you set up Michael and Katie, then, you know, maybe that we can stay here. You know, that's kind of Darby's plan. So they do this thing where like he, you know, comes in the night and both of them are, are, you know, that and then the next day they're kind of Michael and Katie are hanging out. And there's just like these little things where they're they're doing poetry to each other and right, chasing right. each around. But then like the big moment was that like you know uh you know she you know Pony Suguru comes in and, and Katie like tells him off Connor's like I don't need your help and then it's like they're kind of having this little playful argument where it's like you know Katie's like you're not interested in me at all not, not in the slightest and then she goes in for the kiss but Connor's like well you said no you're right, so he walks right. away yeah, yeah and then like she's like shocked it's like it's a little moment like that where yeah. like, it makes it actually feel like again not like because, again, it's the 50s. It's the 50s into the 60s, We're just like a couple years well, ago. Well, we were already
1: just talking about during the movie where they were just like, it's like, you're going to be the age of 30 and not be married? How yeah. could you? Right. Like, oh, well, different yeah, times. Different times, yeah. <laughs> but it's like,
0: it's easy for, like, to, to do a little bit more, like, forcefulness to that. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, But I think, like, it's just like, again, there's just a... Like, what I also really like is, again... That moment where he's like, you're not interested in me at all. No. She goes in for the kiss. He's like, well, she's not interested. Right. Like, in like, more in a playful way. Well, how much
1: were, the, like, all these Disney live actions, like, conscious of that?
0: Um. Well, the thing is, is that, like, there's really, like, I mean, it's, it's family more so, so it's not necessarily gross, but it's also, like, right. like, there very much also is, like, an instinct, especially, like when you compare like the animated films, like, right. as, as much as I like the princess movies and I will defend like stuff like Cinderella and you know, sleeping beauty. There is a little bit more that like, Oh, it's just love at first sight and they're all over each other. And it's right, right. like, like love, 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 right. love. Of course I feel like the live action stuff, generally speaking, they don't, there's not necessarily a real playful, like they don't really push it a lot in the live action one as much, but it's a lot of it is actually pretty well done. Like when I think about like, even like the small little, romance like even like but usually it's pretty small like even in that darn cat like the small little romance between agent kelso and the sister right eventually but it's also kind of natural like they don't even show like i love you it's more so like at the end they just start dating right no that is true and even like and like like stuff like acid-minded professor is playing with like kind of fred mcmurray's character being like you know yeah i mean but I, I do feel yeah, like
1: it were it works i think they do at least for my taste i think they do as good of a job as i i would expect yeah. uh of, of this movie but I, not... I
0: but i do think there's a just a general like cuteness to this one and especially with connery's charm i think uh, i like janet monroe a lot in this movie too mm-hmm. i think they just have a good chemistry in terms of uh, making it seem like again like there's that moment where they're on the hill with the beautiful matte painting by peter allen shaw and they're doing the the poem about you know Irish history. And right, I think that that's like a very nice little moment. Mm-hmm. Um, before he like we even talk about it for a little bit, you know, generally speaking, I think Connery. You can see why Connery could be cast as Bond through this movie. Like, I think like there's an element of yeah. It where, I mean, I
1: guess that's like the big thing is that we need to talk about is like what like what is well, what, I think what do we see in this movie? Well, that, yeah,
0: I think it's generally speaking, I think they see he has the look and the charm. Yeah, and I think you know he. He has that like barroom fight at the end, uh, where he, you know he beats up Pony Suguru. Right. And I think yeah. that's also like, hey, like he throws a punch real well.
1: It's interesting though because I I see the Bond that I would like mm-hmm. in this movie, or at least I can see like where he just seems like he holds himself, good looking guy, uh, who can fight and is likable. Yeah. It, but I I will honestly say that I think that when he transitions into Bond, I think it gets a little bit too much into Mm -hmm. the uh, smugness a a little bit. And, um, like, up and down more so. Again, like, his favorite performance wasn't for me until Never Say Never Again. Yeah. So, but it is interesting that, like, I do think that maybe, like, being Bond, uh, you know, he kind of went into the role with a little bit more of that, like, arrogant confidence Mm -hmm. uh, than I think is seen in here. Yeah. Uh, But if I were to look at this movie, I would say that, yeah, I would say that... um, You know, you definitely watch a movie like this, and you're like, "Whoa, who's this guy?" Like, uh, so that so that all kind of tracked for me. But I'm not sure if I if I saw any for me personally saw any big thing. Uh, that I saw in this movie that directly translated right. into the other movies. I could see why you would want this guy. Yeah. But then, and again, you know, that's bound to happen. What ultimately ends up on the screen in the next movie is what ends up on the screen. Yeah. But th- that was just kind of like my experience watching this. I liked him in this.
0: Oh yeah. Um. Okay.
1: And I like him as Bond. But um, there was a bit of a. I think that he was uh, adopting a slightly different thing mm-hmm. when he got into Doctor yeah. No.
0: Oh, yeah. So before we kind of start like uh, wrapping up a little bit, yeah. uh, I did mm-hmm. want to talk about a little bit more. I, 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 I like kind of the bigger kind of Darby and King Brian like set pieces, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, so the first major one is when yeah, Darby is led to the Leprechaun Cave. And again, all the effects look great. Yes, they are uh, very good. Aged very well. But then Brian is basically like you're staying here forever. You're going to enjoy all our revelry and all like the Spanish treasure we've stolen and all this sort of stuff. And then Darby essentially tricks him. Into, like, playing a, a fox hunting fiddle song that gets him all riled up and out of the door so he can escape. Right. But that's, like, that, essentially, the, with, with the fox hunt violin sequence is essentially, like, that kind of classic, just Disney to me, mm-hmm. where it's just, like, the music and just kind of the, the effects all come together. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And it's just, like, kind of unique and fun. And so, like, because Darby's playing the fiddle and all the leprechauns are dancing and jumping into wine and stuff like that. And then they all get on little horses and and ride on out. And, like, the music crescendos. And, like, I'm also, like I said, a big fan of Robert Stevenson. And I think what I've always enjoyed about his work is that whether it's very special effects driven, like in Poppins or in this movie, or if it's just more straight up comedy driven, like in uh, That Darn Cat or a mix of both, like in Absent-Minded Professor... I think he always kind of brings a mix of, like, the great look and the special effects of the movie, but he also does kind of capture the emotion of of a scene within that realm. And I think that that is true of the Fox Hunt sequence, where you get the joy and the generalness, and then Darby's trying to steal jewels, but his pocket has a hole in it, but he, like... He has to choose between like grabbing more jewels or running out, and this right, is like I right. think there's a lot of fun with that. Well,
1: that was definitely the biggest like cartoon translated into live action thing yeah. where it's like he's got the coat full of the jewels, and as he's running, they're all like, like I got like yeah. the, I got those like flashes of like Scrooge McDuck running yeah. with like the money and like everything. Yeah. So um,
0: so there's that, and then there's the there's the the drinking song, the wishing song, or the the rhyming song that he does when he so he escapes, and then King Brian comes back after him. It's like, you know, you've tricked me once, you know, old man. I'm not going to let you trick me again. But then he does. Mm. Darby does get him drunk, essentially. They do like a rhyming song where they have to drink and rhyme. right And they drink until the morning. And then in the morning, you know, they're in sunlight. You know, King Brian can't escape. But again, just that little bit like, again, it's just two actors, even though they're not looking at each other, just kind yeah. of they're just doing that. And again, great special effects that they don't even realize. Like there's there's a photo on the DVD, like on the set about the special effects where there's a shot of. King Brian watching the jug getting poured and it's a giant cup and a giant, you know, mug of, of whiskey. Yeah. But, like, it's funny because in the shot you see, like, f- four men holding up this giant bottle of, like, giant jug of whiskey. So it's, like, the perspective is still, like, it's still a giant jug in his hand. Right. Uh, which is great. And then, like, the... So that whole sequence is really good. Uh, and then there's the end of the movie. So basically, just kind of to talk about this because I want to talk about, a li- like, it's just a little bit more about the uh, uh, the Angel of Death and the, the, the Banshee. Is that eventually, like, Katie does find out through, like, a letter from the Lord about how, uh, you know, they're moving out. They're supposed to be moved out already. You know, it's the two weeks is up. And so she gets pissed at Michael because, like, you know, why didn't you tell me? Well, you're fed. Right, right. that. And then, you know, Darby also is having a thing because... All the town folks who I love are really just into Darby's, you know. Yeah, Darby's I thought guy. they were really good. I yeah. thought,
1: like, the town's were – especially for, like, what could have been, like, really just side stock characters. Yeah. Like, I thought, like – because, like, cause, like they, when, I, when they came back at the end, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's that guy, yeah. and it's, like, the well, guy who didn't want any like, part of this. Like, Darby
0: and... brings Brian to the – because, basically, like, his first wish was that Brian would not leave him until – basically would be at his beck and call for up to two weeks or until all three wishes have been made. And then the second wish that is a trick because – um uh king brian presents himself to other people as a rabbit because it's at night again he has his powers so connery thinks that you know darby's captured a rabbit and then uh he tricks darby into wishing that he could see him he's like he just sees me as a rabbit so he just wasted a wish uh so darby goes to the the thing to do a second uh his third wish and he's like i also like that he's talking about like everybody's like well, why don't you wish for a big house but you didn't wish for the servants like kind of like right darby right, right as yeah. like kind of the wise man who's like kind of actually thought about this now um and shows growth of character. Yeah, but then he, he like, was very reckless with his wishing before. But then King like basically Katie comes in, and is like, you know, pissed at her father and trying to get him out. And then uh, you know, he lets King Brian escape, but King Brian still is as a rabbit and, you know, right, like right, ah, right. Ha, ha. So basically Katie runs away from the Puka who is, is, you know, helps her fall off a cliff. She's kind of on the brink of death. And then yeah, the Banshee, which is the angel of death essentially, is like coming for her and Darby uses his last wish to wish himself basically be taken away. Instead yeah. Of Katie, this was awesome. Th- yeah. This I thought was great. Yeah. yeah. So, cause there's all these cool effects of just like the chroma keyed in like, yeah. uh, like the banshee and like him going away, with the banshee. And then the death coach, the coat to Bauer comes in and there's like a headless like, yeah. carriage man. Darby O'Gill. Yeah.
1: That, that, that was really cool. And the way that they achieved the effect was yeah, pretty was awesome. Cool. And yeah. then
0: like the movie, you know, like basically like Brian shows up in the coach And, you know, they're talking. And again, like, even this is like a crazy effect because this is still forced perspective. Right. So it's basically like Darby's on like a thing on the front, and then, you know, the rest of the coach is kind of in the back, but it just looks like one big seat. Right. So it's like crazy stuff. But then they're talking about how, like, you know, they respect each other and, you know, they, you know, wish, you you know, they could, you know, they're good friends and stuff like that. And, you know, Darby's like, well, if I'm not here, you just look after Katie and Michael because they're going to be together now. And, and then uh, again, Brian tricks Darby into making a fourth wish. That
1: I thought was cute. I, I like that was what really. In, in fact, like I was enjoying their relationship, but the fact that they ended on that beat really made right, me like, like the two.
0: where is like he's like, I wish I could go with you, no, which I mean. was an
1: important beat because, like, you do the the movie. I think otherwise did run the risk of uh, just making King Brian just seem like a dick. Yeah, uh, who may have they may have had like this friendly. Yeah, you know, like kind of like friendship based rivalry. off rivalry with each other but i think that was the key element to be like oh yeah i like
0: these yeah. uh the, these two yeah so it's uh, like because banging cause, off each other because king brian's like you know I, I wish i could go with you in darby just like you know casu says yeah i wish you could too and then brian starts laughing again that was and, cute and he's like you wish your fourth wish darby and then like you know goodbye my old friend and yeah. he like gets out of there which i kind of like i also like to imagine like the coach goes back like without like anybody in it this brian is like well you know it's a fair game you know yeah he, yeah, you know, yeah it's like, d- d- does
1: that banshee does he have a boss to yeah. answer to right, yeah. it's like well you
0: like wish the fourth wish there's yeah. nothing i can do like like listen on my sheet it changed from katie to darby so i was like okay and then he made he wishes fourth wish there's nothing i can do and it's like oh those those leprechauns <laughs> um last thing we should talk about before we move on to aftermath is sean connery does get to sing a disney song yeah that was
1: that was interesting
0: um so it's been rumored for a long time that it's actually not connery there was a rumor. that was my question there was a rumor for a long time because uh, there's the one that uh, connery sings by himself in the middle of the movie and then at the end of the movie he does a duet with with jenna monroe which is like you know the end of the movie the end of the movie song right uh, it's like goes into the end you know back in the days where there were no end credits it was just like the end go home right uh no post-credit scenes yeah um but basically, it has since been proven, and Connery has confirmed himself, that it was him and okay. him and Janet singing. Uh, Connery said, of course, that that was back to his South Pacific days. Where right.
1: Like, well, once you started giving me some of the background on him, yeah. then I'm like, okay. Well, yeah, because be like
0: good. he actually said, he talks about this on the DVD. He's just like, well, with South Pacific, there was like, you know. 20 other guys so i could just basically hide and just do a deep voice and i would be okay yeah whereas like you know i am got a solo here and it was just like the one thing where like he didn't do but uh the, the song was a was a general hit not as big as some of the disney hits but for the time period it was released as a single and did, did yeah. relatively well um but it's very very much people know this movie partially because it is connery singing in a disney movie cool and it's like, like you know, a lot of these Disney movies, too, is like they have like little songs and little bits like that that you don't really realize that are just Disney songs. Oh, so yeah. You know, like all the animated ones and like all the Mary Poppins ones, but like every, you know, all that sort of stuff is is pretty good. So so
1: um I, I would say like the overall thing about this movie that I found enjoyable to watch. So like in kind of like hearing like the background mm-hmm. of it, the di- di- director's name is? Uh, Robert Stevenson. Robert Stevenson. And would you say this is the kind of the – In in the canon of him doing movies like this, is this like the first one that kind Um, of led to a bunch of like to the more well known stuff?
0: Let me let me double check. It is early on in his directing career, but I think he did a couple stuff before.
1: But but I'm saying like but like kind of like in this Disney Mm -hmm. in in his like his tenure at Disney, yeah. Um, Or did he did he have did he he have one before this?
0: He did he did uh, Old Yeller before this. Okay. Was Old Yeller a Disney thing? Yes.
1: Oh wow, but how but how special effectsy is that? Yeah, no. Okay, so but
0: this is this is his this would be his first big special effects.
1: That's what I mean. But like a movie like this. Yes. Okay, so basically what I what I was going to say and why it's so important to look at the context and the behind the scenes of this movie is that the biggest thing I could say about this movie is that I think it's like a great. uh, a great opening effort um, for this type of movie that he ends up doing, especially looking at his career after this. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of things that he really nails. I think that he nails... I, I was very impressed with, like I said earlier, like the just the side characters and how lively all the characters felt. Oh yeah, uh, it not, none of the 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 people standing around felt like like the most stand in. It felt like was I think when uh, she's leaving the party with uh, a yeah. ponyman. Yeah, like it's <laughs> like that. That was like the only time when it felt like there were just extras around. Yeah, whereas before, like he creates like this really fun whimsical world um and you know
0: what like that's actually something that when i look back at it because again i'm a big fan of robert stevenson's work at the disney studio but i also feel like that's actually kind of a hallmark of his work because even stuff like that darn cat where it's like you just even got these little side characters like the theater owner and stuff he just he just helps direct them to give a personality that makes them stand out when they could just be a bit part and it's the same thing with the townsfolk especially like none of those people like have lots to do But when they're all around Darby and listening to his stories and they all get their little moments to, like, you know, talk about it, Mm -hmm. it's like they do kind of – they do – you're right. When it's at the end when they're all together, when Darby's talking about how he's the only person to ever, like, get into the death coach and survive. Right, right. And and stuff like that. It's like everybody's enthralled and you all, they all get their little moments.
1: And I think that like some things like with the with the death carriage coming in, that's a bit of a tone that's a bit of a tonal shift that I think is good in this one, but he nails in his later movies, yes. especially like when he gets into like the Mary Poppins. Um, so mm-hmm. there there's just a lot of like little little things like that that I think show uh, a lot of like good strengths that made this an enjoyable watch but also opens the door to I think his more refined work later on. And the last thing I'll say about it that I think I didn't uh, I didn't really get into uh, it's a very just likable movie, but in that way, Every character is likable in a certain way. Yeah. Like every character, because it is, like I said, a vehicle of whimsy is what this movie is. Mm-hmm. And because of that, even like the characters you're quote unquote not supposed to like are likable in terms of like their performance and you you have fun with everybody. And I think that th- that is like, a yeah. big like, yeah. success even, of this like movie. Like I said,
0: even like Pony Suguru is like, kind of like, as we said, non-invasive as he is. Again, he does have that, that fucking guy type of smugness where it's kind of like fun... He does make it's like here's the thing it does he does make it fun at the end when he like gets his kind of fight with you know you kind of want to see him kind of get beat up a little yeah bit.
1: yeah but it's like you know there there's a certain amount of like fun to be had with the character I mean but you go all the way like in that darn cat like all those characters are super fun yeah. and likable and even in, in like Mary Poppins all the characters that aren't supposed to be likable you still like and have fun with them yeah like you know like the dad is like you know is very, like, on paper unlikable, but, like, you have fun. Right. You still, like, you, in a weird way, you still like the character. Right. Like, all these characters feel like friends and family mm-hmm. by the end of the day. Yeah. And I think that was a big strength of this movie yeah. that I, I think—
0: I think it's it true. It's a very big strength of the Disney canon. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but especially as, uh, specifically li- this one, because yeah. especially, like, when you get into live action— uh, it can become a little bit trickier yeah. because like when you have an animated movie, it's a little bit easier to have that shorthand right, yeah. of like the, the, the yeah. animated nature and you have yeah. fun with all yeah. the Yeah, characters. I was got to talk about the live action cast because yeah.
0: you've got me kind of thinking about it. Now I really want to do like a series of, of discussions on like these live action Disney films.
1: That's for the Patreon. <laughs> um but yeah no i mean uh overall uh it was it's a it's a nice little change of pace a nice little treat uh to watch this and then and the plus side uh got some early connery in it
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah all right so we're at the aftermath now um so the movie releases uh in um june uh 26 1959 has its premiere uh uh, two days before in Dublin, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently uh Dublin was very happy to have Walt and his crew and had threw a bunch of parties for the casting crew as they did the debut in Dublin. Uh that's another great line like when he doesn't kiss uh sorry, I just it's I was just Um he when Connery doesn't kiss uh, Katie and Brian's frustrated and him a Dublin man. <laughs> well, that that's like one of those things. I love it when movies do that,
1: because even though I don't get like the nuances of yeah. that reference, I just love it when it's like and go- it's like, well, of course, what do you expect? He's from Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> like, I yeah. don't know why I like it. Yeah, I, I think like in a because in a weird way that shows like a little bit of culture. And you have to know what you're talking about. But it's like the same way when you like say like, you know, when you talk about it's like when Jersey people say like, ah, he's from Staten Island. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah. it shows a little bit of a lived in quality. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I thought that was fun. Um,
0: but uh, the movie came out to, to very well reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was a review in the New York Times uh, that loved the cast except for Connery. Uh, really? He said Connery, he's just merely tall, dark and handsome. Uh, but well, but okay, but here's the thing, to
1: to kind of like side with that a little bit. I like Connery in the movie. I thought it was solid. But given, does he just come across as just like the good looking guy in a movie that's otherwise very lively yeah. and personalityful? Like yeah. like to be fair. To be fair, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's
0: just funny that like it's just right before that all that stuff. Right, Connery, right, right. <laughs> it's just like yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean,
1: but you would have like. Wouldn't you have said the same? Didn't a lot of people kinda think that way about Hemsworth, like yeah early on where he's just like I mean, he's good, but he's just like Mm -hmm. good looking white guy who can be in action movies. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's like you know now he's got full of personality. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly.
0: Um, but the film was very well reviewed on the strengths of its direction, its acting and its technical effects. Um, especially its effects were very well reviewed because basically, as one review put it, the Los Angeles Times, being a Disney product, it is as technically perfect a job as can be had. The technicolor, the camera work, the special effects, the music, and all the rich, uh, and all of it are rich, a feast for anybody's eyes and ears. So basically like at this point, like the Disney Studio had that reputation where it's like you're going to a Disney movie, you're gonna get at very least technical perf- perfection. Yeah.
1: Except for horse lips. I <laughs> well, I mean, like I technically like...
0: they were perf- perfect in terms of execution. But, yeah,
1: don't like them. You um, know, the horse lips are kind of like Godzilla '84 lips for you. Yeah. Like you know how much you yeah, hate those lips. Yeah. I hate these lips. I hate okay, horse lips. Enough. Yeah.
0: Um, the movie, though, well reviewed. Um, and generally did was not one of Disney's bigger box office hits. Um, just about, for the era, about three million.
1: See, but that, this is what, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is what's so fascinating to me. Like, I just cannot see this being like, yeah. because it, I think you and I have at this point lived so long where we see these on like, you know, like, uh, like tv like on one of like the art what's that channel called when they like on like amc or tmc tmc yeah like it's like they show these things on like tmc or we see like a box set that has like five of them on there Yeah. that i just can't almost wrap my head around that this was like the these were the types of movies that you would just widely release yeah so
0: it was a kind of a little bit rougher 1959 because the initial releases of darby o'gill and also that year the Finally, the release of Sleeping Beauty also did not do amazingly hot for expensive as that movie was. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Walt had said that he basically felt that if he had had a bigger star in the movie, it would have would have helped a little bit more. Um, but uh, the legacy of this movie is so. Uh, also, Janet Monroe won a Golden Globe uh, for Best New Actress oh, uh, or Best New Star cool. uh, based on this performance. Cool. Um, and again, she would do a couple more Disney films. Um, so. With the live action Disney stuff, the legacy is always interesting in that, again, with post 80s into the 90s when the Renaissance happens, the Disney studio, especially as it becomes a bigger company, kind of focuses its, its history on kind of its animation and its uh, parks history with a little bit like you'll get the occasional like Mary Poppins and 20,000 Leagues that kind of have, you know, the push from the studio. Uh, but a lot of these kind of middle period live action stuff post like tw- between 20 the stuff between 20,000 Leagues and Mary Poppins, you know, kind of gets lost of time, even if they're known. Right. You know, uh, and Darby O'Gill is definitely one of the, you know, definitely not as known as something like a parent trap or, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but there is a legacy of people who do find this movie to be a hidden gem. Mm. Um, and it does kind of have memorable. It's memorable for people who have seen it. And it's kind of one of those things where people not a lot of people have seen it. But, you know, people, you know, right. want to see it. Uh someone who's a big fan of this movie is uh uh someone who we like on the podcast. Uh uh film historian, film critic Leonard Malton.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, that's what uh, I thought you were gonna
0: Yeah, Leonard Malton says that it's one of it's actually one of his favorite Disney live action films. Right. Uh he actually says it's one of the best fantasies put on the screen of that era. He's just a big fan of it. And he he always puts it up as a lesser known Disney movie that you should see okay. um and even connery has mentioned that he's always shocked how many people mentioned darby ogill to him as oh, being like cool. a childhood favorite where because he's like well people always mention bond and highlander and indiana jones like they mention all that stuff but people he, he like it's funny on the comment or on the dvd he has this little interview with him and he's basically like you know People are always like to him, like hmm, Darby O'Gill, like you know, we had that on VHS as a kid, and <laughs> and, and he's and then Connor's like, is that's a good thing, right? It's like, yeah, no, we love the movie. You're, you're like, it's just fun to see you in that type of movie, right? Um, and of course,
1: yeah, especially because like I mean, like even though he's had a crazier career later on, like nothing really stands out like that, like yeah. that he did like kind of like a Disney family type friendly of thing. thing, yeah, thing. right, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, um, so. I have two uh,
1: I have two questions when you're done.
0: Uh, so the other thing I was gonna say is um, I uh, of course, the other lasting legacy of this movie is the fact that this is the movie that they discovered Sean Connery Well that, that
1: was gonna be one of my questions. so, like...
0: so basically the, we we talked about a little bit this in our very first episode of Doctor. No, but essentially is that they were searching for different bonds and Cubby Broccoli was just screening kind of different movies of the of the era. Um, cause this is, you know, this is around 1959, 1960 that they're starting to really like, okay, we have these rights now. Um, we got to figure out something. So he sees Darby O'Gill, um, and he basically just sees Connery and sees the look and sees that bar fight at the end of the movie and basically say, this guy has potential. Cubby asks his own wife about, um, should, you know, should we get this guy? Should we bring him in? And she's like, yo, yeah, he definitely has sex appeal. He definitely can, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, All right. So the wife's like, yeah, Cubby's wife's like, yeah, you know, he has definitely a sex appeal. So bring him in. And so they, this is just the movie where it's just like, hey, this guy, because again, this was his first Hollywood production. Right. At most, he had been doing, like, again, that Requiem for a Heavyweight or smaller British film, like, gangster roles, like, kind of background gangster roles or, like, real British television things. So this was really, like, his big big film debut but this is also a disney movie and right. like, again this is when like the 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 original walt era of the studios like never been bigger because they're but, thi- but this is
1: why i want to bring up like the context of this movie and you watching it now because you know at the time this was a movie that would be massively released mm-hmm. and would be the type of movie that you would see somebody would see and be like oh and discover an actor on where it's just like it's weird because you watch it now and it's just such a specific type of movie yeah. now that you that just for quite some time has not been casually released. Like, yeah. even if you was casually released, you would think it would be like, oh, like, only a few people would have seen it. But this was a movie that, Everybody like would have seen, or yeah. like at least was capable of seeing.
0: Yes, it was very like wide release. Right. Yeah, yeah. So
1: it's kind of like my own biases when approaching a movie like this would be like, well, how did anybody discover anybody from this? Isn't this just like something that they just kind of like did real quickly? And then, but no, you have to realize like these were mo- these were big like, productions. These yeah. were big productions. Yeah.
0: Um. And then it's funny too because I was looking a little bit more into that, and Connery actually had said that the Bond offer when they offered it to him was basically like that was the one hundred percent commitment to film because he knew that no matter what happened, he was gonna be doing multiple movies and that was like a big deal. It's like, do I wanna do multiple movies as his character? Do I wanna to commit to doing like something this big? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this was still at a point in his life where like he was doing a bunch of small roles, you know, he again he'd been doing the babysitting thing for a little bit. Right. And like babysitting stars, kids, and stuff like that. It's just basically like, is this something I want to pursue? And so him signing the bond offer was like, I am an actor. Yeah. Like that is my career.
1: Yeah. Um and then who's Harrison Ford in this? Okay,
0: movie? so very specifically, so we didn't really talk about that. There's like a priest character. Yeah. And he mentions like, okay, the, the parrot Oh, that was that was something I think that didn't
1: really go no, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. Only so, because I just remembered it and yeah, he exactly. brought it up. Yeah. So there's a priest
0: <laughs> character. And so basically it's like, you know, part of the movie is like he's basically guilting Darby into like getting this bell because he's like, well, if you're dealing with, you know, leprechauns, you're not like dealing with God or whatever. Again, very kind of minor part of the movie doesn't yeah. really go anywhere. Also, again, not really invasive. It's just kind of there. Right. It, it's
1: also such like a, a big like statement that yeah. it's like, but anyway, yeah. yeah uh-huh. But
0: anyway, so he's basically like, oh, like the the priest next door the na- and the parish next door, they're getting a new bell. So he graciously gave us our, the old bell so mm-hmm. we can have a bell. I think Harrison Ford is that other priest. And he's like... Yes. And he's basically like... You you know, like oh that that crummy parish down the way, like they can have. I, this that's old, a good one. That's a good one. Bed. I was
1: gonna go a little bit simpler in uh, that um, he's the doctor that comes and uh, sees um sees her when she's like bedridden. Oh yeah, or whatever. Caleb, Katie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, cause I I just feel like he could come. Cause this was like in that time when Harrison Ford was like you know wearing glasses and being an apocalypse now for yeah. a scene. Like it's like so like I think that that's what I what see. Was 1959? Huh. What.
0: What like.
1: I'm just saying, early Harrison oh, Ford. Or, okay, no, I'm okay, not fair. saying. I'm <laughs> not like, saying the movie came out when this like, happened. This is, this is still a long time
0: since. This is still a long time since Star Wars. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah.
1: So anyway, cool. All right. Well, um, that was fun. That was yeah. a nice change of pace. I really enjoyed uh, yeah. watching it and talking about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so next time. Yes. I, I I debated what we would do next time and whether we would jump around to different things, but I think we should do the other kind of children's fantasy film that we will have on this list.
1: Oh yeah. 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 So
0: we're gonna talk about uh so next time on the Bonzilla podcast next month, we're going to talk about uh the life of Ian Fleming. Yes. Uh we're gonna talk about a movie uh that has uh Sherman Brothers soundtrack that is produced by Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman and do you know who directs this movie, Will? Do you know? Oh, oh um
1: uh you're gonna say it and I'm gonna be like duh, but yeah. like
0: uh one Mr. Guy Hamilton yes. is coming up. Yeah, back that's into what it was. Yeah. We're gonna be talking about uh the musical Dick Van Dyke vehicle, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I'm
1: excited for that. because
0: uh, I was like, I was gonna say I was gonna jump around to maybe more like more spy or adult stuff, but I was like, why not get the, the like why not continue the children's train? Yeah. So definitely. uh we'll talk about chitty chitty bang bang next month. Yeah. And uh, the life of Ian Fleming. But
1: uh next time it's not a Bond episode, it's a Godzilla episode. It's not. And we're gonna be uh revisiting uh the uh, the technological terror that is Mecha Godzilla in Godzilla against Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. So that will be fun. Um, and then as always, go back and uh, check out our catalog of news and deep dive episodes. We're very happy with those. Uh, anyway, and we- we'll
0: have a we'll have a new a deep dive for Bond, which I don't know what it is just yet, but we will figure <laughs> that out. We're so good at our job. Well, it's just, there's just a lot of options. I just haven't made the decision.
1: Um. All right. Uh, we gotta get out of here. I'm done. We're done. You're done. All, right. all good. Uh, plug away.
0: All right. It's uh, bonzilla pod at gmail.com. Uh, Twitter.com slash bonzilla 007. Facebook.com slash bonzilla 007. Like and subscribe iTunes and SoundCloud. All
1: right. Well, uh, that's it. Nick, until next time, it's time for us to do a jolly Irish gig off of yep. this. Jig mm-hmm. off of this podcast.
0: Yeah. Let's just, uh, you know, we'll sing my darling my risk girl <laughs> i am definitely going to be doing a like i want to do a series of podcasts now on the other disney live action stuff too so yeah we'll you see. had to
1: get it in there we're uh, we're wrapping up dude you can't
0: <laughs> just uh, you know uh, i'm going to i want to promote the groundswell like is the, that is that what you're doing like i'm, you're, you're, I'm like you're the people are going to like be like let's they're give they're going to be clamoring They'll for finally it finally email us <laughs> all right take care everybody bye bye